This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Happy Thursday to you. By the way, one day before Memorial Weekend. This is Memorial Day, I think, Monday, right? Holy cow. So get ready, folks. You're one day away from, I'm sure, having a barbecue, probably doing some some yard work, and just hanging out with your family, your friends. Life is very, very good. And uh, top of the morning to you. We got a lot to cover today. We, of course, uh, I'm here with Jeffrey Simpson. Jeff is back from um, a hearing. (laughs) No. I'm going to leave you in suspense. Je- Jeff was not here yesterday, and um, it was really sad. It was a sad, it was a lonely, dark show, just without the love of Jeff. But he's here today, so we will enjoy his company. Also, hmm. I didn't know you cared. I cared a lot. I didn't have anybody to tease, didn't have anybody to blow a horn in their ear didn't have anybody to talk about their baby coming (sighs) Jeffrey Liam Simpson he brings a tear to your eye you got it right Uh, we've got a lot to cover today we're going to be talking about fake news and apparently it's not a new concept 19th century a lot of fake news going on because it was expensive to send like a journalist to another country, so instead they would just read this. They just read the newspapers, and then fiction writers would write really intriguing story sidelines and and bylines about you know what's going on in another country. And who's going to check them? Who's going to check you? Right. But now we have the interweb where like, we can check everything. Like, and we still believe second. in fake news. Yeah, right. So we'll talk fake news today, and and just a really interesting review of uh, how long this has been going on and actually what it takes to fake people out. It's not even that hard um, to do. Uh, Today's, by the way, is Geek Pride Day. Here is some... um, Is this Geek Pride music? Yeah, Geek. Oh, Oh, sorry. I thought it was Greek. You thought Greek. Is this Greek? This is Greek synth music. I love... Greek Pride Day. No, that's a whole other day. You're a geek for the Greeks. Yes, I am. Geek Pride Day, which is an interesting um, it's an interesting journey. I, I wouldn't understand much about it. Jeff, tell me what you know about Geek Pride Day. Well, you're asking me? Well, there is one other person in the room. Terry, tell us what you know about Geek Pride Day. Well, it started to celebrate... Star Wars, when it premiered in 1977. Oh, that makes sense. It's the 40th anniversary today of Star Wars, A New Hope. Really? What Was that 1977? Yep. It's a trap! Yeah, I was eight years old. I did not... Okay, that's good. That makes sense. I was not born yet. Yeah. Give it a couple months. Uh Uh-huh. So, hold on. Really, Geek Pride Day was to celebrate... It it began with... Using that... Star Wars... Hugely historic moment Uh in time. Like, all time changed from that movie on. It just changed what? everything. So, from that, that a few, I mean, it just happened probably within the last 10 years. They started celebrating on this day, but this day is to celebrate everything that came 
from them. It isn't the official uh, geek garb. Uh, don't you have to have earmuffs that look like Princess no. Leia? Nerd alert! No, some people do. That's the way they choose to so express So if, if you're themselves. an adult male carrying a lightsaber around, yeah. you're probably going to enjoy today. Sure. Geek Pride Day. Today's your day. Tomorrow might be a little strange. It also could be anybody that uh, is really good at mathematics, video games, fantasy literature, science fiction. Right. Or just do you? Uh huh. That's cool. Just embrace who you are. And I, I was. I want to apologize. I'm a little late getting into the studio. This yeah. Morning. Where have you been? There was yet another Spider-Man trailer. Oh, brother! <laughs> so I had to watch it. So I think now you can piece it all together, and you've got the whole movie. Yeah, there's Pretty enough much. trailers not, now. Not really, but this one is really, Here, let really. Me, let me guess. A guy was bit by a spider. No, he our, gets a special suit. We're beyond that. He's already Spider-Man. Oh, he gets a special suit because we watched in in the Avengers or uh, what was it, uh, Captain America: Civil War? Tony Stark. Get him went, straight, Matt. Tony Stark went to Queens and hung out, and he's like, yeah. "I've been watching YouTube. That's you. You're Geek Spider-Man." I love the one where Spider-Man meets the Queen. That oh, was Queen a, Latifah. Oh, I love that one. Well, no, he actually... That's a that was person. such a good one. Uh, so we, of course, I'm sure we'll geek out with more well, Spidey talk, not wanting to, but forced to. I brought a packet of geek-related news. Oh, cool. If you want just a little, little yeah, sampling well, of what's just, out there. Let's just, just sample. sample. sample and that the stack news. right there was just a breakdown of the Spider-Man trailer. Well, there's three in there dealing with the Spider-Man trailer. <clears throat> oh, my word. There's new products you can buy that are Ugh. in the Spider-Man trailer. You are an adult male. I know. It's great. And why are you wearing that Spidey onesie? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm celebrating the day. That's creepy. Hey, uh, also today, of course, we'll do some empty news, some headlines as well. Plus, just hopefully try to get out of Jeff where he was yesterday. Yeah, he kept it all a secret. Yeah. yeah. But he, did you notice? his? He looks like he got some Botox. Oh. He looks all Botoxed up. He's all puffy now? No, he's just, his, his forehead doesn't move. Oh. Well, that's convenient. Yep, that's and pretty... you can see your reflection in my forehead. <laughs> I, I, can see, <laughs> I can see my face in your forehead. All right, all that straight ahead, folks. But first to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the The country? Transportation Security Administration is testing new screening procedures that require travelers to remove electronics bigger than a cell phone and some food items from their bag and place them in bins to be screened separately. Uh, if passengers don't comply, their bags may be open for manual inspection. There is no specific threat associated with these items that hey, requires Manuel, them to be screened. Search this bag to be screened separately, and the change is not associated with the ban on laptops and other large electronic flights originating from some Middle Eastern airports. Mm. Rather, the move is intended to increase efficiency. Okay. So, what do you think the effect no. of screening more items not going to be okay. more efficient? Okay. This is the TSA. This is yeah. What yeah. Seems like it would be less efficient. So it says the goal is to cut down on manual bag checks and keep lines moving by screening these items separately and then threatening you with a manual. Okay. If you have to. Yeah. Well, I mean, we'll do it if we have to. Yeah. Uh, Olympic gold medals for more than 130 winners from the Rio de Janeiro Games last summer are rusting or chipping, according to officials. We're oh, seeing no. problems with the coverings on between 6 to 7% of the medals, and it seems to do with the differences in temperatures. This comes from the... Rio Games Communications Officer Mario Andrada. 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 He added that the decaying was completely normal after nine months, since only 1.34% of the metals are actually gold, and 30% of the sterling silver came from recycled silver. The most common issues they are the, the metals are being dropped or mishandled, 
and the varnish has come off, and they're rusted or gone black in the spot where they were damaged. This, this is normal. If your uh, chest apparently. if your chest turns green, that's normal. The uh, IOC and Rio organizers are planning a system to replace the medals for those who are unsatisfied with the defective medals. At the London Olympic Games, organizers provide instructions to medalists on how to keep their medals in mint condition, but did not specify any details on room temperature. Medals for each Olympics vary in how they're made. However, uh, the Olympic medals for 2020 games in Tokyo, for instance, are expected to be composed of recycled cell phones and small appliances donated by Japanese citizens. Really? Yeah, so you're getting junk for your medal. Wow, it used to be the medals seemed like a really important thing that would yeah. never well, it, they're expensive. Deteriorate. So yeah. you, you get a gold medal, it's mostly paint, mm-hmm. apparently. Regularly eating chocolate could possibly help prevent a type of irregular heartbeat yes. that can increase the risk of heart failure, strokes, and cognitive impairment, according to a new study. Uh, so between 2.7 million and 6.1 million Americans have atrial fibrillation. Yeah, AFib. AFib, in which the upper chamber of the heart beat at a different pace than the lower chambers. But a study of 55,000 adults in Denmark found that those who ate chocolate at least once a month had rates of AFib at 10% to 20% lower than those who ate it less than once a month. Hey, maybe they ought to fill those gold medals with chocolate. Oh, I love it when the gold's on the outside and there's chocolate on the inside. The Mm. The best result came from eating an ounce of chocolate two to six times per week. It's impossible to say, based on the study, whether the chocolate consumption was directly responsible for the lower rates of AFib. Researchers also aren't clear how chocolate could even affect the development of the condition, but it may have something to do with things called flavonoids. Oh, I've heard of those. The flavonoids in chocolate can I, stop yeah. inflammation and Flava lead to tissue damage. Yeah. Isn't he, he's think, a rapper. I think Jerry Lewis came up with flavonoids. <laughs> and finally, most people know that jelly beans contain sugar. Did you know that, Matt? I thought they did, because I always got jittery after. Right. A California woman, however, says she was left in the dark and now wants retribution. Jessica Gomez says she purchased Jelly Beans, or Jelly Belly's Sport Beans, advertised (laughs) as a supplement for carbohydrates, electrolytes, and vitamins. She thought they were like sport. She believed that the candy had a lot less sugar than it actually does. Sugar Notes uh, was not listed in the candy ingredient. Sugar is not listed in the ingredients. Only later did she realize that uh, evaporated cane juice, which was listed, was essentially, you know, sugar. Sugar, cane. Now, in a class action lawsuit, she's going after Jelly Belly, saying the omission of the word sugar came from a label, uh, on the label, was a deliberate attempt by the company to deceive consumers. Okay. And she's kind of backed up because the FA, FDA guidelines, last year they stated that juice on a label should only be used to refer to juice from a fruit or vegetable because replacing the word sugar with evaporated cane juice is deceptive. So she could get some money out of this. I, sh- I hope she gets those Jelly Belly suits. Jelly Belly calls the whole thing nonsense. Now, had she not ever heard of a Jelly Belly? <laughs> I don't know. They had to sit those guys down and make them eat a popcorn-flavored Jelly Belly. Oh, those are so good. But no, yes. those are the worst. Those are, the, those are Maybe great. Maybe some grass or booger Jelly Bellies ought to do the trick. But these sport beans are, are marketed as a health supplement. Yeah, so they might be like at the like the health food store. Yeah. And they, they, I bet it says, it'll boost your energy. Right. So she goes, great. So she eats them and then, oh, wait a second, this is sugar? Wow. Yeah, you're eating candy. See, this is – I guess we'll get into this when we talk about fake news today. But there is a point where you do need to use your brain. Mm. This is true. Right? I mean, she had to have heard of sugar cane before. Right. 
right? So she called it's called cane juice. They didn't use the word. Well, sugar. I know, but cane. Like, what was she I, thinking? It was I, like from Grandpa's cane. I'm going to guess she didn't look at the ingredients. Yeah. She complains about the Jelly Belly Sports uh, jelly beans, but she was able to cut three strokes off her game. See? It's not bad. It's not a bad thing. Wow. You know what? A lot of things are blowing up now. Apparently, Mm. researchers have found out that too many cocktails might be associated with an increased risk of breast cancer. Yeah, I read that. Even one drink. Mm -hmm. One drink may increase your likelihood of breast cancer. That's of alcohol. Yes. Good, good way to clarify You can that. drink cane juice all you want, but just know there's sugar in it. Just know that. You know what I've been drinking a lot of lately? Naked drinks. Have you ever seen those? Yeah. I guess I shouldn't name the brand. It's a brand that rhymes with bacon. And, um, but yeah. what, I hap- what, I'm, what I'm finding out, you won't believe this. No way. They're, they're like little smoothies. I, I already can't believe it. You won't believe this. <laughs> Please I, tell me it's not just juice that you're drinking I naked. I found out there's juice in it. No way. But it's you're, you're fully You're fully dressed when you drink them. Well, yeah, depends. Sometimes, but it's all natural, therefore. But they're drinks. So as a guy that's been on a liquid diet, mm. if I have one more smoothie, I'm probably going to harm someone. Wow. I'm so sick of juice. It is a public service smoothies. announcement and a threat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't had caffeine forever. Oh, you seem on edge. And you're down to what? Five kids now? You have lost, you lost yeah, one. Down, down to five. You cut a few out, no problem. Can't find another one. Eh, don't mis- turn up. Misplaced. He's him. in the basement somewhere. So, juice. You can't. You, you can't drink alcohol. No. And uh, jelly bellies apparently have sugar in them. They have sugar. Jelly beans have sugar. It's crazy. <sighs> These are all new developments. Any more bad news? Chocolate, AFib, chocolate could possibly help you with a See, that's good irregular news. heartbeat. That's really good news. Huh. That's why my wife's heart's so strong. She's, she loves chocolate. She likes the chocolate. I think she really likes the flavonoids mm. because Flava Flav used to have that, have that show, um, and she was a big Flav. Has she Flav started wearing Flav. the giant yeah. clock around her neck? Yeah, she does. Yeah. Yeah. It was weird because it was our kitchen clock. Well- Repurpose. Those things are huge. 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 Hey, by the way, Ivanka is becoming really popular too. Now she's gathering, crowds are just gathering just to see Ivanka now. It's pretty cool. And Melania Trump, um, I guess, declared that she's Catholic. You worded it as she came out as Catholic. The the headline on CNN is that (laughs) Melania comes out as Catholic. Well, she had the Pope bless the rosary that he gave her. I think this, the but that, story that I wouldn't read. mean you're Catholic necessarily. It just means well, you respect the Pope. It was the the way she had him like she, he he moved on and she went oh 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 and then had him come back to bless the rosary. Oh. So it was like oh, it was cool. important to her yeah, rather than just neat. I got a souvenir. Everybody yeah. should believe in a higher power and right. some higher source. So she's Catholic. Trump is wearing a yarmulke. Yeah. So well, his daughter's Jewish uh, with her husband um, Kushner. Hmm. Now and Donald is still yet to be determined. TBD. Well, he goes to. There's a church in Manhattan. That, oh, that's right. Is it a golf course? Oh, that's no, in New no. Jersey. I that, think it's a resort. It's different. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's good. It's great. Okay, uh, we'll take a break, folks. When we come back, we're going to be talking fake news, and uh, it's not a new concept. Apparently, in the 19th century, it was thriving. And our next guest is a researcher that's been studying what are the keys that make it so believable. For all of us, and I think it's important for us to know why we bite on fake news, then we can find ways to avoid 
doing such a thing. We'll be back. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. You know, although we didn't hear much about it until recently, fake news is uh, it's not a new concept. Petra McGillens uh, is an assistant professor of German studies and media history at Dartmouth, and she's on the line with us today to discuss some of the research she's been doing on fake news that dates back to the 19th century. Petra McGillen, thank you so much for your time. Yeah. Hi, Matt. Thanks for having me on the show. Great to have you. This is this is so, I think, fascinating. I had no idea we've been, I mean, I knew, I knew there was some faking of news, but it, it, you know, it used to be a real art form. Yeah, yeah. It was one of the uh, tricks of the trade, in a way, in uh, the 19th century. And of course, fake news is older than the 19th century. I think um, it's older than the news business. People have always been telling lies. But yeah. Um, and, you know, there was fake news in ancient Rome. And I mean, you can find lots and lots of stories once you start looking. But, um, yeah, there's definitely um, something that changes in the 19th century and uh, a development of um, practices of faking that were shared among journalists. And, yeah, as I said, we're part of the tricks of the trade. And that was your I mean, that was part of your goal was to figure out what is it about the layout of the story, what is it about the writing of fake news that, that actually makes people buy into it? Right, right. That was what I um, wanted to uh, know more about, because um, I thought, well, there there must be um, practices that we can reconstruct and trace and figure out how they did it. Um, if we look at what uh, journalists did in the 19th century, how they went about their daily jobs. And um, there was this one story uh, that I found really interesting. I'm, I'm working on a German uh, journalist turned novelist, Theodor Fontane. And um, one of his assignments as a journalist was to cover news from England and uh, to cover the so-called England column of a daily paper in Berlin. And uh, he managed to write about England and report from supposedly from London while he was sitting at his Berlin desk. <laughs> wow! And I I found that um, really interesting, and it, it I, so I looked pretty deeply into uh, what exactly he did there and how he wrote his uh, accounts from quote unquote from London. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I found all sorts of really interesting parallels, but also huge differences with today's um, media world and media business. And that's how I got into uh, this whole this whole topic. It's interesting. I guess um, Fontaine, you clarified, is, is you could think of him as like the German Dickens. Mm-hmm. But he's really I mean, it's it's a novelist. It's a it's it's somebody that's really good at fiction. But then they, I guess what they do is they take enough of the truth that is in the popular press anyway, and then he was able to then add stories, side stories, and, and more intricate uh, detailing that uh, that fascinated people, it intrigued people. Yeah, and that's also exactly how he basically, and other journalists at the time as well, justified it as a way of telling a story uh, that would be more gripping, more evocative, more powerful, and this is not to say that he worked without a moral compass or without a moral code. He would have been really outraged if you had called him a fake news writer, um, because 
the way he thought about it was that it is the journalist's task to write the story in the most powerful way, in the way that it would reach the audience and readers could really connect with it. And um, to give an example, he um, wrote a report about the so-called Tooley Street fire that um, blazed through London in 1861. And uh, Fontana sifted through the papers that were already reporting uh, on this event. I mean, it was a multi-day uh, catastrophe. It had been raging already. And so um, Fontana's uh, task was to cover it for his own paper. And um, so he started looking through um, English newspapers and also other German papers. And um, he basically picked out the uh, most relevant passages from these previous articles. And he literally cut them out or copied them over um, and pasted them onto a uh, big piece of paper. And then he wrote in new details that he, some of which he invented. Um, to make his own account of this fire more dramatic. So, hmm. for example, um, he, invented, he invented a guy who could get him closer to the scene of this terrible fire than anyone else, you know, a guy with special privileges with the police. Um, and then he wrote this really almost, you know, beautiful and evocative account of this fire. And I think his readers, uh, you know, from a first-person perspective, that is uh, the important point here, while he was sitting at his uh, desk in the Berlin newsroom. And I think his readers believed it because it really resonated with what they knew about London and the fire already from their their reading of the other papers and the earlier coverage. And so he managed to um, sneak in these, these additional details. Um, but at the same time, his story was still by and large true. I mean, the fire was happening and... So, um, you know, it would be a simplification to call this a modern fake news, but it certainly resonates with how we find, um, why we find modern fake news credible. Yeah, I guess all we have to do is see information that we already believe in, a bias that we already have, and right. then and then our brain almost, or, or something that we already know it to be true. Like, if you do know that there's a fire going on and, and the fire's been burning for days, just that very thing puts you in a place where you might have, you might believe in it, the story. Right, right. And you already, I mean, you, you start, you know, speculating and you have an idea that forms in your mind of what the scene might look like. And um, there are certain cliches around uh, these kinds of dramatic events. And so Fontana was really careful to connect his own story to these circulating um, cliches. And he even reminds the reader at the beginning of his article that the reader knows a lot about this fire already, you know. So right. he says, uh, you've already heard about this fire. And um, so there's this, this, this almost like a trigger. Um, and the reader then is all the more inclined to um, buy into it. And um, yeah, so, and it was really interesting to um, reverse engineer some of his articles just to see how he pulled it off. And that is something that you can hardly do these days just because there's so much more out there that journalists and, um, well, and fake news producers can work with and recombine and, and, and stir up and mix together and publish. Do you think his intention um, was a different g intent than the fake news writers of today? Definitely. Um, very much so, I think. Um, I mean, he. I don't think he ever intended to produce flat-out lies um, that was not in his interest. It wouldn't have been in the interest of his paper um, because these kinds of uh, newspapers in the 19th century were 
really, really expensive um, enterprises. I mean, they required a lot of financial backing. Buying a good printing press or just having things published was an enormous expense that not everybody could afford. And um, so, you know, newspaper owners took a considerable financial risk. And so it just wasn't financially viable to have your reputation ruined by producing bogus stories. Um, Right. And so, I mean, of course, um, part of the intention uh, for this paper, uh, for for the Kreuzzeitung, the German paper for which he worked, was, um, well, one might say propaganda or ideological. I mean, it was a very conservative paper. It was a mouthpiece um, of uh, very conservative uh, political parties. But at the same time, the intention was not to um, to to get complete bogus into circulation. Yeah, right. And I guess that's it, because today's fake news – in fact, in your article, you talk about the fact – you tell the story of the uh, – one of the more popular fake news stories that came up during the election about the fake – or the ballot boxes being stolen. Right. Maybe tell that story and um, and, and let's compare the two. Yeah, so um, there was this really, uh, it was one of the, I guess, fake news masterpieces, if you want to give the guy credit, um, of the campaign trail. And um, a 23-year-old college graduate, his name uh, is Cameron Harris, um, launched a bogus story about stacks of ballot boxes that had allegedly turned up in a warehouse in Ohio and that um, were supposed to contain uh, fraudulent Clinton votes. And um, so, and it, it was a really interesting um, case for the comparison because his his method was so similar to what Fontana did in the 19th century, um, with the difference being that um, Harris's story was completely um, made up and that there was not even a kernel of truth to it. Yeah. Um, but he explained to the Times later, to the New York Times, how he uh, approached the topic and um So he said, well, I knew that I I had to connect my own story to um, things that the readers were already familiar with, to a familiar narrative, to a meme. And that was um, uh, Donald Trump's claim of a rigged election, rigged election. And um, so he said he knew he had to uh, connect his own bogus account to this theme so that people were predisposed to believe it. And um, so... Just like Fontane, he also invented a guy, an electrical worker, um, who had, you know, stumbled across the ballot boxes, Harris said, in a part of a warehouse. And then Harris um, quoted him, and he even inserted a photo of the guy and of the ballot boxes. And the photo was from Google Images. Yeah. And, you know, showed Just some... Pulled some, it down. Some, some, right, some balding guy in England, you That's know. That's amazing. And, um, so, but it shows you how how easy it is these days to even fake what we would have normally considered evidence. Yeah. Well, and so it, it was just, I guess it seems interesting, too, because today versus back then, um, it, it was me believing the story, finding my own bias and that made it easier for me to believe the story. Then I would actually I would push it on. I would send it to my group of fans or my Facebook followers. And I myself, because I believe it, just keep propagating my belief system. And it, yeah, so th- yeah. I guess that wasn't as big back then, I'm assuming. I mean, what, what could you do with the paper but hand it to someone else? 
Right. I mean, papers circulated in interesting ways in the late 19th century. I mean, people would, of course, talk about them. And um, when you were subscribed to a paper, it would come to your household and then, you know, it would get passed on. But, um, you know, for example, among different family members or friends, but still at the same time, just the sheer scale of, yeah. um, of, of social networks today and, and social media, I mean, this is just something that... Uh, is so mind blowing and so different. You know, once you have uh, two billion Facebook users and they can uh, share anything just with the ease of a mouse click, that's just a different. Yeah, it's just a completely different kind of scale. Such a different scale, isn't it? Does um, when, when you look at it, you know, as a as a media historian, is um, do you sense that we're we're losing the ability to even to to believe in news anymore to have credible news are we are we moving beyond a point where people actually would trust the media i think we definitely are and it's a pretty um frightening development in yeah. a way because um i i don't think that the problem is that we don't have enough facts or anything i mean there are tons and tons of facts out there and there's great reporting happening but the problem is that the facts do not seem to matter. Yeah, and, it doesn't. Um, so, yeah. yeah. So I think one of the key questions um, is that we need to get to a point that at which facts matter again. And uh, that's a real challenge. Well, exactly. And I guess on top of we're so polarized politically, so it's almost any political story, you don't trust the facts unless they're coming from the site that already has your bias. Right, right. So then, then it's really you just trust your bias. Um, but then the Harvard study came out recently talking about how much of the press towards Trump has been negative. What right. what does that show us? Uh, I mean, just as a layperson, I, mean, I have a journalism degree and practice it. I don't know if I would. I don't know if I've ever practiced journalism, but I've been in the media. And um, what I wonder, I guess, is. If there is such a negative bias towards the Trump reporting, um, then are they really doing their duty as journalists, or is it true that Trump is just that negative? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like, what's going on here? Is it just biased reporting, or is Trump really just that negative? Yeah, well, it's 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 tempting to say, well, but what 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 kind of positive thing would you say? Right. So, but, but like yeah, like I mean, when, when he he what did he do? Oh, when he when he bombed Syria, that was like the only positive press he got. Right. And so, I mean, there was something there, or the economy, right. any economic thing might be more positive for him. But overall, it was negative. Hmm. I honestly, I I don't have any any uh, great solution or a great idea for how to get out of this this um, this this almost it's almost like a double bind, you know, in, yeah. in which journalism seems to be caught, and um, there's definitely the self-enforcing spiral. Um, you know that once you start reporting uh, negatively, uh, these stories, of course, also get picked up. Um, everyone likes. Um, the scandal and and outrage better than the um, happy story. I think, you know, I think part of the problem is also the insane pace at which everything yeah. is being reported and happening. And so there is no time to um, to really analyze to see what the other side might be to um, to try to paint um, a fair picture. And it is also something that I think um, you know the way that the White House has been handling um, journalists um, that it has encouraged that. Yeah. You know? So. 
Um, so uh, this is really, really a, a, a complex um, problem, and I think part of it, part of the solution, uh, would have to be that you know we would all have to slow down but yeah. i mean that's not that's not part of the media logic you know well, and especially when it's so competitive now right and there's right, so much exactly. money being made i mean even the biggest even the new york times and some of these bigger outlets are making mistakes Right. That, that do bring into question temporarily. I mean, they correct them, it seems like, but it still mm-hmm. does bring into question some of their methods, their how they quote and cite people. Um, Petra, let's take a break and come back. And when we come back, I'd love you to explain to us what are some things we can do to not fall prey to the fake news just from your research. I mean, I know you've, you've figured out some of the things that draw us in. What should we be watching for? So we can manage our own media intake. More with Petra McGillan from Dartmouth University. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you cut through all the fakery. This is uh, this is our goal: help you be healthier, live healthier lives. We'll be back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Joining us on the phone is Petra McGillan. She is a uh, historian at Dartmouth, uh, uh, researching German studies and media historian. And uh, she's done some intriguing work when it comes to fake news by going back and finding some 19th century fake news reporters and um, trying to understand how they would write stories you know, when they weren't even on the scene, the stories that they would gather enough facts from just the other headlines and everybody else that was that had sent reporters to a to an accident or to a fire. And and then um, they, they had enough of the data and the facts that they could put together with also some creative writing, some pretty amazing pieces, which uh, is just more history on the history of fake news. Petra, again, thank you for being with us. Yeah, it's great to be here. You brought up the point that there's it's the speed of journalism that might be creating problems with the whole Manchester bombing. Um, there, there's a lot of uh, rumors that have been going on. A lot of mm. fake news have been made. You know, even saying things like, you know, if if the travel ban, if if the Brits had a travel ban like Donald Trump had put in there. Uh, this never would have happened, even though that ended up being a lie because the guy was from there. And um, also other stories of people that were killed in the bombing. Just because right. I guess this, the problem is it's the speed of Twitter that the journalists have to keep up with. And yeah. um, then you have to sort through all of this stuff. Yeah. So, um, I mean, that's a huge problem. And at the same time, it would not be a feasible solution to just, you know, log out of Twitter and never oh, right. look at it. Yeah. Because, yeah. And I mean, the, the the so-called mainstream media depend on Twitter and on the shares and the likes and the comments just as much as the um, new and, you know, these, these, these instantaneous um, media and messaging apps and all that rely on mainstream media. So, in a way, it's an unhealthy symbiosis, but um, there is uh, we're not going to be able to disentangle that. You know, it's 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 going to continue um, to happen. Twitter is not going to go away. So I think mainstream media and um, social media will need to find a way to uh, work together if we ever want to resolve uh, these 
enormous challenges that we are facing right now in the journalistic trade. And, and I guess that's easier, I mean, to the degree that they could ever do that, because that, meanwhile, there's still going to be people that are doing fake news just simply for the purpose of messing up the system and, you right. know, and, and playing the system, right? So, sure. yeah, I, I, guess, I guess that's why maybe the responsibility falls more just on us, the reader. Yeah, I mean, our receptivity for fake news is a huge part of the problem, and um, I don't have, uh, you know, blanket solutions, but I think, um, for starters, we should all try to adopt um, a balanced media diet in a way. Um, you know, we should mix fast and slow outlets, um, read papers from different um, sides of the aisle from different, even from different national contexts, if you can. If you yeah. speak a foreign language, you know, read a, read a German paper, read a French paper, read uh, British papers, uh, Canadian papers. I, I mean, I think there are um, lots and lots of options here how you can make efforts to break out of your own filter bubble. And there are even apps you can install, you know, the um, Get yeah. Me Out of My Filter Bubble app. Um, and uh, and then also, I think we all have to resist the the temptation to just get you know absorbed into this whole hype and hit the share button before we have actually thought about a piece and 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 thought it through. And um, that's right now. I mean, education and adopting a healthier um, yeah maybe media diet is 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 an okay term for now. Um, I think that's that's the only reasonable first step. I I look at it um, because the only really social the only real social media I do is more for my profession and uh, for my followers. So I actually look at it as my brand in a way. Um, yeah. It's funny that, but a lot of us don't do it that way. So if I we don't see that I could say something offensive in by liking something that's offensive. And a lot of people don't seem to have the social awareness to know that that's a turnoff. Like, I don't want to receive mm. more of this fake news from you. Um, so I guess some of this is just getting to know the impact of what you're doing. Right. And um, I think I, I completely agree. And I also think um, that you have to be aware as a media user that just because something got a lot of likes doesn't say anything about its quality. That's on, true, on right? Country. And I was really stunned uh, yesterday in my media class. Um, we discussed the work of a German uh, reporter collective. It's a very small independent collective based in Berlin. And I was curious what my students would make of uh, the stories that this collective provides. And, you know, my, my students were extremely skeptical um, towards the work of this uh, group of journalists. And they are all, you know, they're independent, they're ad-free, these journalists, they are financed through um, subscriptions and memberships. And the reader can chime in. And it's, it's in a way, it's, it's an attempt to collectivize um, reporting in a, in, a, in a good way, you know, so that the pieces can actually get better. But it's done by professional journalists. And mm. I found it absolutely amazing that my students um, were, their first reaction was, wait, but wait, who are these people? Why should we trust these individual journalists? Yeah. Um, where are the, where, where is the, the crowd, you know, of, of, of readers um, vouching for their credibility through numbers and likes and clicks? And, you know, I, that really got me thinking, you know, what, what kind of relationship do we have to uh, the rubber stamp from the crowd? Oh, and so, it's so yeah, true. 
yeah, that was that was an uh, yeah an, an eye-opening moment, and we had a long discussion about um, whether getting your news from a place like Reddit um, will actually get you um, <laughs> the the truer stories. In a way, right? You know? No, exactly. Yeah, you're you're in the feeder for some of this fake news story. I mean, that's the thing. If you if you're going to be a connoisseur of information, then you probably ought to find your favorite chefs. And like you're saying, get a diverse palate, like go get go find enough that are thinking differently. And that that I also like to look at the ones who really have a stake in their reputation that because you got to know who's saying it. You have a really interesting quote on your um, bio on the Dartmouth website from Nietzsche that uh, you're right. Our writing tools take part in the forming of our thoughts. Mm -hmm. This this really becomes. This is how we create our meaning, right? I mean, it's our interaction with this me- the media and with our, our family and friends about the media that, that starts to form what things mean to us. Yeah, and um, the way Nietzsche thought about uh, this, I think Nietzsche thought about this from the, from the perspective of the producer, from the person who's writing it, right. um, because he was one of the first German uh, intellectuals and writers to, to have a typewriter or a proto-typewriter. He used um, a funky-looking, uh, <laughs> what was called a writing ball, um, because his eyesight got so terrible that um, he had to uh, use this device in order to continue to writing. See, yeah. He could no longer yeah, read his own handwriting. Um, and so he started typing rather than writing um, by hand. And um, and that taught him something about the um, the impact of the device on his thought process. Hmm. Um, but this was from the producer's end. But I think you're you're totally right that it also applies to us as consumers, and more so now, more so than ever before. Um, and uh, I mean, the only thing in this whole um, you know in this whole morass that that gives me hope is that. The 19th century basically resolved its, um, if you want to call it a fake news problem, um, its fake news problem through um, a push toward greater professionalization. Um, because, um, you know, journalism was just beginning to develop at the time. It was beginning to develop its its professional standards. And so there was a lot of just uncharted territory that, that, that journalists and practitioners needed to figure out. Yeah. And and so they, um, they, they all of a sudden they realized that what they had perceived as harmless faking, you know, the embellishment with little details here and there, this kind of armchair reporting, um, which was pretty widespread. I mean, Fontana was not at all out of line um, with what he with what he did at the time. They realized that you know, the yellow press was taking this um, and running with it, and that it was all getting out of hand. And then the bigger papers um, started to. Um, to 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 push back and and develop standards that banned these practices and said no it's um, a journalist who fakes these kinds of details has just been was just lazy and has not been to the scene um, and so they started excluding these kinds of practices they no longer taught them I mean these practices were parts of journalism manuals yeah. um, at the time and little you tricks <laughs> yeah right. right. Exactly. Oh, interesting. So they did and they so, did elevate the game they 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 right. they increased the standard. Mm-hmm. And um, so that would be my hope, you know, that um, yeah, this then in the 19, I don't know when exactly in the U.S., but in Germany in the 1920s, the first journalism schools were founded and, and you know, um, ethics became part of the curriculum. And um, to call someone a faker then turned into um, an insult. Ooh, and, yeah. um, so, you know, so in a way, um, the profession resolved this problem through higher standards. Um 
But um, of course, today the stakes are, re- are or the stakes seem higher, and um, we have to figure out many more um, parts of the problem here. You know, also the low entry situation, where essentially everybody can be yeah. um, a journalist. It's um, if you got an iPhone. Right. You can, you're, you're going to make the news. You're going to make something happen. Well, Petra, we appreciate you. This is great insight. And, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that having, you know, leaders like you behind the scenes teaching our journalists, uh, and having these conversations, maybe we will come out uh, in the future with even a stronger press core and a higher standard of press and the media. Thank you. We'll take a break, my friends. Come back. Continue the journey. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. I'm ready to go in, coach. Just give me a chance. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball. Welcome back. You know, uh, the truth will set you free, right? But what I'm worried about when it comes to all this fake news is I think we're just getting lazy. We, we, are, we are just lazy consumers. And if, if we like the information to come to us and with, with all this great technology, we don't even need to – we really don't need to do anything. It will be hand-delivered to our nice little device – and mine, it'll even come up in a pop-up window to tell me wonderful, important, breaking news. Um, and then all of a sudden, we may not even check our sources. So you got to be careful. And one of the big pieces of advice I have is I think there's a it's a scary moment the minute you make it um, about a financial enterprise and gain. So the minute we're now going for money, then truth might be impacted or the minute it's there's an entertainment value to the delivery of the truth so we we not only have to read and study but if if it's not entertaining you don't want that information isn't it isn't it interesting that uh republicans have such great success on talk radio because i guess they can make it more entertaining and they can gather audiences um but then there's not a lot of really conservative television talk show hosts at night. All of the talk show hosts at night tend to be more liberal. So liberals can make the television funnier so they can skew the information. Republicans can skew the information uh, on the radio because somehow they have a corner on that market. But where does the truth lie? And it's got to be somewhere in between, right? And and it can be in both sides. So become a connoisseur. Look through it. And Find your favorites and make sure it's diverse and question, question. You should be, you should almost have an inherent doubt about everything you read. Find the sourcing, figure out where it's coming from. And just because it it aligns with what you believe in doesn't mean it's true. So we also have to figure a way to intentionally start questioning, questioning some of our own belief systems. It's a lot. To, it's a lot to do, and it's a lot to ask from people that may not even care in the first place. You know, as long as the Kardashians are good, life's good. Anyway, let's do what we can, folks. Let's not be taken away, swept away in the fakery. We'll take a break. We'll come back next hour. More ideas, more information to help you live longer, love stronger. Stick with us.
This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends. Hour number two of the program. This is the show where we give you the latest, greatest research. We try to bring on the people, the thought leaders that are on the cutting edge of, uh, of life and, and learning so that you can get the tools, the information you need. Today, we're going to be talking about how to personalize learning. Uh, what would happen if we no longer called people, the, the kids that go to school, students, but we started to call them learners? And from the very beginning, we start creating learning plans that they create, that they own their learning. Instead of a student with the assumption that we just hand it down, teacher will give you what you need to know today. Tomorrow's another day. You mean to reemphasize the fact that they should be learning? To, to reemphasize the fact that it's all up to you. Hmm. This isn't something that we give you. We don't give you an education. The education is yours from the beginning. You've got to go get it. Love it. That's what she's going to talk about. But Terry rolls his eyes because it's like he's thinking, I'm bet, just another term. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, here, my, just with my kid in kindergarten, you start hearing stuff like that. Well, but the reality is, would you not want your kid to start owning his learning? Sure. Like maybe not in kindergarten. He's just lucky to, you know. But, but a lot of times the these programs come out and they're just talk and they don't actually implement anything and right. it just turns into the same program. So she's going to talk about actually following through with well, it. Well, but and, what and what I've you can do as a parent, because yeah. like, really it's got to go, we want it to be the district's fault or the school's fault or right. the teacher's fault, but it's really the parents have got to instill a plan and a, a, an agency into these kids. Mm-hmm. We see that in college. Otherwise, everyone's just jumping through hoops even in college still. Yeah. Haven't you seen that comic where it was like 1960 or 1980 and it had these parents yelling at their kid in front of the principal about the grades? And then flash forward to today, the parents are yelling at the administrator about, about the, the students' grades. Totally. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So we'll get to that, um, how to personalize your learning and how, how, to, how to create a sense of ownership with your children about learning. Interesting topic ahead. Plus, of course, um, we are going to continue to celebrate Geek Day, Geek Pride Day. It's a great day. It's a great day for anybody that loves Star Wars. If you, if you seem to really do well in mathematics, video games, fantasy literature, if you have to watch every trailer of Spider-Man. Yeah then you should be celebrating Geek Pride Day. It's really... When, when Spider-Man was revealed in Captain America uh, Civil War... Yeah, okay, that's good. Let's, we don't have to go there. They're all standing in the air, at the airport, and, <laughs> uh-huh. and all you heard was Iron Man yelled out, under ruse, because that's what he called Spider-Man. And he comes flipping out, and he takes Captain America's shield away. Huh. And he goes, hey, wow. And he's like talking like he's a 15-year-old kid. Yeah. Well, in the trailer, they have video from him when he's... In, back behind everyone hiding and he goes oh there's Captain America there's Iron Man who's that new guy and then you hear in a distance Iron Man call him out and then he flips out and you see him because he's out he's a 15 year old kid and he's talking on his phone and he's okay. putting this on Instagram this, and uh, it's this, great this, it's, just, it's great stuff this I remember scene that scene of geekdom brought to you by the upcoming movie Spidey Revenge Spider-Man, Spider-Man Homecoming, Spider-Man Homecoming. I remember that scene at the airport when they're all trying they're out, they all got bumped from their flight and they had this huge you're, layover Hold on you're not going to now participate in geekdom No actually he's not cuz that's not what happened Okay Are you sure Yeah 
And then he's talking on his phone, and then Ant Man turns into giant. Not man everybody. Him. He's like, "Whoa, he's big! I gotta go." Not everybody. They're not. Not everybody's into what you're talking about. Well, that's really the essence of what we're talking about with Geek, Geek Pride, Pride Day. Yeah. He's proud. He's proud. It's to be. not. It's not about making sure everyone's in on the story. There's just things that people don't really okay. embrace, and there's yeah. things I do. All right. Well, we'll get to we'll get to all of that. Uh, actually, we won't we won't get to that ever again. And then um, Spider Man was forcibly removed from the flight. You mean Underus? Yeah. yeah. Well, no. As he said in a later scene, uh, his friend they're watching a PSA, and it's Captain America telling him to stay in school. And, sp- and his Nerd friend leans over and he goes, "Do you know that guy?" And he goes, "Yeah, I stole his shield." And then he pauses a second and he goes, "Then he beat me up because he did." Okay, he dropped an airplane on. All him. right, so we'll get to that um, excitement. We'll also we've got to cover um, a Florida woman finds an iguana in the toilet bowl. Yeah, the pic- have you- the video. Of this is crazy. I mean, you have a large lizard swimming around your toilet. <laughs> yeah, this is not good. Uh, we'll talk about that and the call to nine one one, which is a it's. Riveting. Um, all that straight ahead. But first to the headlines, uh, the non-geek proud headlines from Terry South. I had to check. Yes, you're right. Um, Target will pay $18.5 million to 47, 47 states and the District of Columbia as part of a settlement with the state attorneys general over a huge security breach that compromised the data of millions of customers. Wow. Remember that data breach? Yeah. The settlement ends a year-long investigation to how hackers obtained names, credit card numbers, and other information about tens of millions of people in 2013. New York will receive $635,000, while California will receive the largest amount, $1.4 million. But then that money will go to the state, and then the state will then get it to the people? I'm not sure how that all works. Because it, it, it was the people that were violated, right? Not the states. Right. But yeah. the states have to bring the lawsuits. So, Okay. Yeah. So dollar figures were determined largely based on states' population. Uh, Target said it was pleased that they have resolved the issue. Target has spent $202 million on legal fees and other costs since the breach, according to the company's most recent annual statement. So we'll see. Hmm. I don't know how individuals are benefiting from this, but they're paying a fine. Um, in other news, for years, consumers have uh, wear, wear, warred with telemarketers for ringing their landline phones at all hours of the day. Pretty soon, though, they might find their mobile voicemail under the same sort of assault. That is, if the U.S. Republican Party and other others have their way. The GOP's leading campaign and fundraising arm, the Republican National Committee, has quietly thrown its support behind a proposal that the Federal Communications Commission that would have would pave the way for marketers to auto-dial consumers' cell phones and leave them pre-recorded voicemail messages all without ever causing their device to ring. Don't you dare. Under current federal law, telemarketers and others like political groups aren't allowed to launch robocall campaigns targeting cell phones unless they first obtain a consumer's written consent. But businesses stress that it's a different story when it comes to ringless voicemail because it technically doesn't qualify as a phone call in the first place because the phone doesn't ring. Oh, brother. So we're just going to get our voicemails spammed if this goes through. In their eyes, it means they shouldn't need to have a, cu- a customer or voter's permission if they want to auto-dial mobile voice inboxes in bulk uh, with these pre-made political candidate messages, and they want the FCC to rule on it once and for all that they're in the clear. For now, the matter rests in the hands of the FCC. Mm. And they tend to be leaning in the way of, let's go ahead and spam everyone's voicemail. Then you know what? We don't vote those people back in. Anybody that votes for this. We'll see. That makes me mad. We'll see. With 80% of American households now having at least... 80% of American households have at least one smartphone. More homes now have a smartphone than they have a DVD player. Oh, yeah. 
for sure. Yeah, so DVDs and Blu-ray Hold players. On, do they still have DVD players? They do. You can go buy them. DVD and Blu-ray players are now in 70% of homes, down a significant 7 percentage point from last year, likely due to the increase of streaming services. TVs remain the most owned co- consumer electronic device, with at least 96% of households owning at least one TV set. However, the total number of TVs owned actually dropped 3% to $308 million because apparently people don't need six TVs in their house. No. We had, I, there was a point growing up, I think we had a TV in every house and our shed in the backyard. And every room in the house? Wow. Yeah, yeah we had cable in the shed. That was sweet. That's Talk, great. Play with the dog and watch sports. And finally, only rice is rice, and calling rice vegetables rice is misleading and confusing to consumers, begins the latest agricultural throwdown. <laughs> this one courtesy of the president of USA Rice. So cauliflower rice is not real rice. That's the problem. The lobbying group is understandably upset by what it terms the popularization of cauliflower rice. Cauliflower that's essentially ground up and looks and acts very much like actual rice. The vegetable version has started popping up in freezer aisles near packages of frozen vegetables and actual rice with Green Giant Fresh even going so far as to market its own version with a slogan, Move Over Rice. Move Over! You know what it sounds like to me? What? These guys are ricist. USA Rice, the lobbying group, says we may be asking the Food and Drug Administration and other regulatory agencies to look at this and make a ruling on the standards of identity. Just as with milk, no one owns the word rice, scoffs the executive director of Plant-Based Food Association. As long as consumers are not confused, I doubt USA Rice will get very far with the FDA. Wow. Yeah. That's a throwdown. Rice cauliflower controversy racism is a big problem these days yeah it is yeah that's a great point um that all of the sudden you thought i thought i was buying real rice right but it's cauliflower rice yeah huh i'm confused it's good stuff it's like a jelly belly mm-hmm. that then i later find out has sugar in it what's up with that that's insane. Who who does that? Who does that? To a jelly bean. You put sugar in it? Um, okay. I have officially just had a very big startle. Um, a gross moment. A woman finds an iguana in her toilet. You watch the video? Yeah. Yeah. Like, okay. But we've seen this before where they find a snake in the toilet. Mm-hmm. I'd rather find an iguana yeah. than a snake. But it's still unsettling. You're not supposed to find that in the toilet. No, but you flip that lid up. Honestly, I, I guess if I lived in Florida, I would keep my toilet seat down, my yeah. lid down. I'd have it locked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I'd like – you'd have to like have a handle on it to unlock it and then – But if it came up through the pipes, that's not going to really solve the problem. No, but it would keep it in there. Oh, yeah, yeah. It would See, my deal is I don't – the last thing I want now that I've seen this is to be in bed and then hear my toilet lid flip up. You're right. You don't want anything getting in. A little in. splash, splash, splash. You don't want things getting in. You definitely don't want things getting out. Did it really – okay. So there, so we'll put the video on our Twitter feed, at Dr. Yeah. Matt Show. But there, it's a pretty long iguana, and um, it's doing what it can to work its way up the side of the Are you watching slippery it now? bowl. Yeah. Let me see it. It, it actually – it's startling. Whoa, he's just chilling out. Yeah. But so it's like a spa day for him. That is a long tail. <laughs> Honestly. Cause I as a guy that you know, in my middle age years, I get up in the middle of the night. And I live in the desert, thank heaven, so I don't have to I guess worry about that something coming up in my yeah. toilet. That would just Yeah. It's hard enough to get stuff to go down the toilet. 
But to know that stuff's coming up. So um, she was on the phone with the dispatcher, the 911 dispatcher. Yeah, yeah. She called freaking out. And she asked her, are you sure it's not a snake? Oh, yeah. It's got legs. You know why she asked her that, though? Why? I think it's because the dis- they interviewed the dispatcher, and she had just seen a new movie. Oh, really? And, oh, snakes. Uh, and we have one small clip from that new movie. Okay, cool. I have had it with these mother-loving snakes in these fresh and clean toilets. You're looking a little flushed, snakey. Ooh, Samuel L. Jackson's in that one. Huh? He's back. So it's part of the it's part of the snake series. Yeah, I think they're just calling it snakes in a. It's a good tagline. Or snakes on a. See, l- <laughs> because they've had snakes in a plane, snakes in a car, and now snakes in a toilet, and now snakes in the toilet. Well, now they they need a sequel: iguanas in a toilet. And I, it came out over the weekend, and it was the number two movie. Really. You know what's great about living in Florida, though, is apparently you can then call the Miami-Dade Fire Rescue Venom 1 unit. Yeah, that was the other side, is they have a, a unit named Venom 1. Venom 1, <laughs> which they'll then dispatch. Uh, I think he's in the new Spider-Man movie, too. Venom 1, uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. And um, they're there to get snakes, iguanas. I don't know that iguanas have venom, but I still think, I think they fall under the purview of Miami-Dade's Rescue Venom 1 unit. Which is almost like SEAL Team 6. Yeah. It's, a, it's, it's pretty much the same thing except we're talking animal control. It's Venom 1. Okay. So that's uh, – just be grateful. If you live anywhere else in the country, you, you don't have to wake up to that, to an iguana scratching at your bowl. Man, iguana know how that story ends. So I just, I just posted it to the Twitter account and the uh, photo uh. is a photo of the animal in question. I don't know why that just gives me the chills. He's got good color to him, though. Um, so, okay, let's change the subject a bit here. Uh, a man calls police several times and claims that he wants to see his wife, Taylor Swift. Hmm. I didn't even know she was married. Yeah, I know. Maybe uh, she was a, this would be a surprise to her, too. A man was arrested in Lee County, Florida, for abusing the 911 system, calling the police to say he needs uh, to, the police to bring him his wife who he claimed was Taylor Swift. According to the Lee County Sheriff's Office, 27-year-old Kevin Thorne, oh, so it's Taylor Thorne now. Well, that's what he thinks. Yeah. Uh, was near the Hilton Garden Inn at Fort Myers when he started calling the police, asking uh, the police to bring him to Park Royal Mental Health Facility to meet his wife, hmm. Taylor Swift. Police so, told Thorne to leave the property and stop calling 911. Knock it off. <laughs> Get out of here. So if I can't find my wife, can I just call the police and say, bring her to me? Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, they'll deliver. Really? Uh-huh. Nice. That's what's so great about the police. They'll do what, they'll do what they got to do. So out of Florida, by the way. Amazing. No way. Another one? Yep. Florida's a great place. Florida is a great place. They keep the show going. What would we do without all the empty news from Florida? One of my great favorite songs from uh, Taylor Swift Thorne. <laughs> Didn't she have a song about a breakup that was really popular? Yeah, I think it was. It's called "Break It Off." Break it off. Was that what it was? Yeah. Was she talking about Thorne or was she talking about Timberlake? I can't remember. What, wasn't I there? thought it was Thorne. Oh yeah, I think it was too. Because well, she, you know, she talks about like a thorn in your side. Oh, that's yeah, true. that's true. 
Well, Kevin, we, we wish you the best and hope that, you know, just keep the dream alive. We'll take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about how you can help your children personalize their learning and become agents in their own learning. Up next, this is the Matt Townsend Show. For students to become more proactive in their learning, they need to understand how they learn so they can develop the skills to support their own learning. Personalization, or what is more commonly known as a personalized learning approach, offers a great opportunity for students to take ownership of their learning, to acquire the skills, to direct and advocate for their own educations. And uh, today, joining us to talk about personalized learning is uh, Kathleen McClaskey. She is the CEO and co-founder of Personalized Learning uh, LLC and co-author of the book, How to Personalize Learning. Kathleen's been on the show before. Kathleen, thank you so much for your time. Well, I really am happy to be back and talking about this second book that we uh, authored. So um, I'm ready for any type of question. You bet. Is it? I guess part of what we were talking about earlier about our learning is it seems like overall we've we've pushed the responsibility of learning to the institutions, almost to, to school, to teachers. Um, to the principal, to the to the district, when in reality, learning is it's our responsibility, isn't it? It's ours. Uh, yes, for sure. I mean, um, first of all, um, we have actually have done exactly that. We've actually made the teacher both responsible and accountable for the learning of every learner, and we don't give any responsibility to the learner themselves. And uh, that has obviously been problematic, and um, and it's really produced kids that are really, uh, a lot of them are highly unmotivated now and unengaged. There's all sorts of data about how the lack of engagement occurs in schools because, first of all, they just sit, sit there, and they're just like the recipients yeah. uh, of whatever is being said, and um, that really produces a great deal of boredom and uh, does never really engages a learner uh, in learning. Well, notice by uh, the way, let's point out what you you've now used the word about five times. The word learner. You're not even calling them students. Is that part of how we differentiate this? <laughs> well, you know, um, uh, about five years ago, when Barbara and I uh, first started personalized learning. Um, we talked about, a lot about this, and I said, uh, I was saying to her, I said, you know, we just need to uh, really be talking about the learner because um, the student is really a very archaic term, by the way. It was really developed in the Middle Ages, hmm. and it really means that there, it is an individual that is sitting within the four walls uh, in, uh, and in some sort of institution. So um, it really doesn't apply today because learners actually learn everywhere, um, and the whole terminology learner is really wonderful uh, for kids is because then they can identify with that term, uh, where student really implies something totally different. It implies that uh, someone who is compliant, that follows all the rules, um, and, you know, does the homework every night, and not that learners don't do that, is that children actually see themselves as learners um, can actually now um, really take that take that ownership and they um, are more engaged uh, with that whole concept of learning and learners. And the goal is learning, right? The goal isn't studying. Yeah. The goal we, is we to learn. We really talk about that, but the thing is, 
one of the terms that I came up with uh, uh, last year when I was doing an article, I basically said every child on the planet is a learner. Um, yeah. And that's all of us, by the way. So Yeah. Well, and every uh, adult should. And I guess if we yeah. could instill this early, then we would be a lifelong learner. That's right. That's right. The terminology is so critical when you're creating personalized or learner-centered environments. And, and, um, I've, and we've, had, we've persuaded quite a few people not to use the word student anymore and to use the word learner um, because then it's that self-identity um, that's really important, um, kids seeing themselves as learners. And, and in today's classrooms, kids that may struggle or find it difficult to learn don't necessarily see themselves as learners. They've sort of left that, that realm uh, as a learner, and, um, and, they, and they sit there just waiting for someone to tell them. It's so do. true. No, and I mean, I remember sitting there, what grade was it that you learned times tables, like third grade or something, and thinking, my brain doesn't work this way. My, like the way they were trying to teach it to me, it wasn't, it wasn't clicking. It wasn't clicking. And so then I, I immediately thought, well, I'm, a, oh, I guess I don't, oh, I don't do this then. I don't get this. I'm not, this isn't right. for me. So I immediately right. disconnected of even a need yeah. to learn it because it didn't fit me. And the thing is, it goes, uh, and so this whole idea of understanding who you are as a learner is so critically important to really develop self-advocacy and to be able to advocate for who you are as a learner. Um, and uh, and once you identify your strengths and challenges, um, then you can actually start thinking about, geez, you know, um, I really like to de- I really like to develop some skills in these areas that. I'm having some challenges with, and there you're setting some goals. Um, and can you imagine goal setting being a part of your education? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and especially that, personalized goal setting, right? That fits my world. Setting. Yeah, that's yeah, I mean, that's the way it should inter- be. Yeah, go ahead. But you introduced how the kids want to be able to support their own learning. Well, they actually have to develop the skills to support their own learning, and uh, and each one of us. Uh, is unique, and uh, we need to develop skills for a lifetime, you know, and, and, and so what we try to do with kids today is that it's not about skill development. It's really around passing a test or, or getting through uh, a set of cu- curriculum or standards and, and not thinking about how the learner needs to develop the skills. And like you, you tried to learn times tables. Maybe you'd learn them in a different way. No, exactly. Uh, yeah. And so... You, you should be able to say that. You should say, you know what, I'm not getting this. You know, um, is there another way? I would really like to learn this a different way. So uh, understanding who the learner is, but empowering the learner to understand who they are. And I guess this is a parent, this is a paradigm that we could teach the children, but really, I guess, too, it needs to be supported through our families. I mean, it's it's a it's a bigger issue, right? Because it's to have the lone child, I could see one child in a room that learns that they that knows that they need to personalize learning. But if if the whole if the whole teaching method doesn't facilitate it, if the parents don't facilitate it, if we don't have accountability to it, then it's just going to not work. Yeah. So one of the important things when you want to create learner centered environments within a school is really to get everyone together: parents, uh, teachers, the kids. Uh, the business people in town, your community, and really talk about that, about what you really want for your learners, um, you know, in your community, what you want them to be able to do. 
it's really collective uh, group that needs to take place and agree to that. And it's about really setting a, a vision and a set of beliefs around learning hmm. um, the community. Because then there's that ownership again, you see. Yeah. Once everyone agrees to that, there's ownership now. Um, and I think that lots of um, schools that have been very successful at this have really gone that particular route. And they also, by the way, develop a common language around personalized learning. They all agree of what it is, okay, and what it means um, and what it's going to look like uh, in their schools. So um, it's not ever it, – some teachers try to go uh, solo, but um, in order to really to make real change with learners, um, you really need to do this system-wide, uh, and kids need to be able to um, – be able to, again, support their own learning from year to year. So they're all working in a very similar system. So in your book, How to Personalize Learning, you go through, you, you, you kind of take it, I guess, through step by step, how, how to institute this in your child's life and I guess also in a classroom. Right. Talk right. about wh- where do we begin with our own child? I mean, if we buy into this idea of learning, um, and, and that they become a learner instead of just a student. When do we start talking about it? How do we start instituting it? Well, it's not, it, it's, first of all, it, um, let me just say to you is that the one key in uh, this particular book, uh, especially around the learners, is uh, discovering the learner. Okay, And parents could really use this. This happens to be in Chapter 4. It's called Discover the Learner in Every Child. Um, and that's that's uh, was very intentional <laughs> on my part to yeah. read that chapter in that particular way. But what it is is that kids now can tell their story about who they are, okay, and uh, be okay with all of that. And uh, it's our job, whether as a parent or as a teacher, or even collectively, to help that learner again develop the skills to become more self-directed and independent. And I talk, we talk a lot about in this book what's called learner agency. And it is that learner that can be self-directed and self-motivated and self-regulated um, and who can monitor their own progress in their learning and develop the skills uh, to be um, independent. Um, so agency uh, is extremely important with learners. And that I wrote an article um, this uh, past year uh, with, uh, ASCD educational leadership, and um, and it was around personalization and universal design for learning, and uh, my subtitle is called "Realizing the Promise of Agency," because once you empower kids uh, with who they are and how they learn, um, then you really have empowered them mm. to be uh, advocate for their own learning, and. Um, instead of us telling them what they need, right? Kids need to be saying what they need. Yeah. Um, and we need kids to develop agency because a learner with agency is a learner that's future ready. Okay. And um, agency, you're defining as that they're that it's that they're the driver, they're the energy, they're the they're empowered, and they're the source of their own learning. Correct. They're an agent, like a free agent. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so they actually become an expert on their own learning, but not only that, is that they are, you know, they're able to monitor their own progress. They actually even can design their own learning experiences in the end. Kids that get to that level, uh, especially, we see a lot of that in high school, the kids designing their own experiences in 
uh, high school and oh. uh, here in the Northeast, there's um, a Pathways program where kids design their own um, pathway to graduation. Um, yeah. And the thing they are wanting to do in their life, okay? So it's that whole taking in charge and doing something that you want to do, that you're interested in, and really tying it in. And then a lot of educators will be listening to this, but tying all those experiences really to, of course, the standards of the competencies yeah, uh, that, that are have. required. Uh, that are required. And all those experiences could, can be nicely tied into those. Oh, yeah. Um, so, it's uh, almost it's, it's almost like we have this weird model where we pretend like we're teaching our kids agency, um, and then we almost unlike we almost unleash a pseudo agency when they're like a senior in high school. And now you can kind of start being a little bit more free in your learning program and development program. Then we're going to send you to college. But what uh, what Kathleen's teaching us is this has got to start at the very beginning. We've got to start instilling this idea that uh, you're an agent from the get-go. Powerful stuff. We'll take a break, come back, and start figuring out how we discover and how we teach the child to discover their, you know, their learner skills, their their gifts, their abilities, and then how we start to empower the child to become a personalized learner. Powerful stuff. We'll take a break. Stick with us. Welcome back. Joining us on the phone is Kathleen McClaskey. She's the CEO and co-founder of Personalized Learning, LLC. Also uh, co-author of um, the new book, How to Personalize Learning. She wrote that with Barbara Bray. And uh, another book is um, Make Learning Personal. And all tools, really, for us to be able to work with our children and our educators on their learning process. Make sure that they understand that they're agents who are supposed to be responsible for their own learning, but we need to get them the skills, the tools to, to from the from the very get-go, I guess as, as young as we can, start in, instilling these ideas in their heart. Kathleen, again, thank you for being with us. Well, thank you very much. How young is too young? When can we start, you know, putting the the responsibility, or at least the, the concept in the mind of the child that you're a lifelong learner. Well, I think you should, it's really started really back in kindergarten. Um, and there's, I'll say to you, is that there are some really excellent models around the country in creating learner-centered environments in that a very young age. Mm-hmm. And uh, that is really where it begins. Um, so uh, kids need to be able to talk about who they are mm-hmm. as learners. They need to be and. They probably are not going to be as sophisticated as as a child that's at say ten or eleven or twelve years old, but certainly they can tell you the things that that you need to know about them, you know, yeah, um, and about how they like to learn and um, and the things and because you want to really build good conversations and relationships with learners, and um, that's really the key. Uh, so they do open up to you, and they do talk to you about those things. And as they uh, talk, they're te- they're really they're they're helping you discover them, right? And, and as a parent, I guess you want to just you know you don't need to judge it. You just you instead just need to use it as oh that's good information. You have a harder time with this right now, right? That's great. What what else do so, we need to learn? Uh, what are the other principles that we want 
to use as part of this? Uh, I mean, I know eventually you get into actually holding, you know, you know, meetings about it and creating goals. And how do we how do we start the process? Well, um, we happen to uh, introduce in this book, um, and actually even the last book, uh, this concept of a learner profile. And uh, we use universal design for learning, um, and it really is based on the neurosciences, on the what, how, and why of learning. And um, what we've done uh, with universal design, um, and, and I want to say to you and say to the audience, the reason why you don't use learning styles is because there's probably over 40 years of research that says that learning styles have not been effective at all hmm. um, in teaching kids. Uh, they really only look at a single dimension of a child. And uh, we learn in many different ways. And, um, and it's really been really damaging for lots of kids because they sort of identify themselves um, as uh, a particular type of learner. So Universal Design for Learning um, does this here. Uh, we actually took the principles um, from Universal Design for Learning, and we've created three words, access, engage, and express. And what does that mean? It means what are the strengths and challenges of, a lear- of how a learner accesses and processes information into usable knowledge? Uh, so that access is very important. Let me just give you an example. So some kids may access information um, through just, they prefer to use just print, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, some kids may actually need to have video um, to access. Some kids may need to have a digital file because they want to listen to uh, the content. So that's how kids are accessing in, um, in information. So understanding the strengths and challenges a child has around that is very important and for a learner to be able to talk about it as well. And the next one is engage. Uh, so engage, how does a learner engage with the content? Um, do they like to um, be part of a, uh, a team of, of kids to in, engage in content? Uh, do they like to uh, engage um, through problem solving or designing or, or building? Or um, how does the learner like to engage with content? And the third one is express. And express is uh, how does the learner need to express what they know and understand? Uh, this is really, really evident, especially when kids have to demonstrate mastery of a skill, uh, that kids should be able to be able to show that or express what they know uh, through different ways. Mm. And that could be through some audio that could actually, uh, the kids could actually describe things. They could do, um, uh, they could do some multimedia presentation. They could write it. Um, they could d- demonstrate or, 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 or just, demonstrate it physically if it happens to be something, say, like in science. Uh, But kids need to be able to express what they know and understand in different ways. And even if you ask a child um, how they prefer a need to, 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 um, to express what they know, they will actually tell you. Um, And those three things, access, engage, and express is what we call the UDL lens. Um, in which a learner uses that as well as the teacher or e- even a parent. Uh, this would be very um, uh, eye-opening for parents uh, to be able to take a look at who their children are. And um, there's some really good resources in the book. We actually provide a lot of those descriptors already in there. 
But we want kids to be able to tell their story and who they are and how they learned. And this is really a way to do that with a learner profile. Why would because I can hear a, I could hear a teacher sitting there saying, "Well, there's no way I can have 30 kids in my room with uh, every with you know half of them or a quarter of them wanting to access it this way, the next quarter this way, with engagement this way, with uh, expression this way. I mean, it shows the complexity of the process. And I also could hear a teacher saying. Or others saying, don't we need to make sure that kids learn all of these things? Um, Like they need to learn to express visually, but they might also need to learn to write a paper. They might also need to learn to do multimedia expression. But that's different than like creating balance in life is different than learning. Yes. I mean, the thing is, but just remember, if the kid, if the child wants to learn how to do, I mean, what motivates a learner is when they can actually say, you know, I would really like to learn how to do X, right? Uh, I yeah. want to learn how to use um, and edit uh, this video to be able to show uh, what I know about this. And so the thing is, is that um, and that question comes up a lot. Well, how does a teacher really do this? Um, well, it's so critically important, first of all, to understand the learners in the classroom, to build those relationships with them. And then when you're thinking about the methods and materials that you're using as a, as a teacher, you're thinking about the learners, okay? Mm. And, uh, and, and not that you are, are, are personalizing it for every single learner. You're designing a lesson that will be the most effective, okay, for all the learners in your classroom. And so we've actually created a, um, a what's called a, a class learning snapshot uh, for teachers, because lots of teachers do have a lot of kids, especially middle school, high school, and the way that you do that is you take a look at your four children in your classroom who are from both ends of the learning spectrum, okay, uh, and do a profile and look at their profiles um, from those both ends. And, um, and it's really what's called designing from the extremes. And the neurosciences really bears this out, that if you take those children from both ends of the learning spectrum, and look at them and how they learn, and then design your lessons around that, that you'll probably be more effective um, than not doing that. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I guess um, this is just, it's all information, um, but boy, I, if I just, if I, it's one thing, I guess, to get it instituted through this through the classroom, boy, it's another, I could just see the power of knowing with my own child how they access, how they engage, and how they express um, mm-hmm. Just by me simply knowing that it may because like I'll, I'll notice my children will naturally do things like they, they might naturally be making videos and DVD and, and using, you know, our technology to, to make a multimedia presentation. And they might just be doing it for fun. And I right. might be frustrated because they're not working on their homework. And yet, meanwhile, <laughs> if I could somehow hook their homework right. into that presentation ability, they would actually take it to a different level. Yeah, so the thing is, is that if we tell every child that they have to express what they know in very specific ways, and, and, and that has been the norm, and that is still the norm in a lot of schools, for sure, uh, that some kids like may not have, uh, that may not be a way they could do that. You know, there's some kids, by the way, that actually can verbalize better about um, how, what they've learned uh, yeah. than writing it. And there's lots of children in that category. Um, and just remember, there's all sorts of tools, and we haven't talked about the technologies, but 
there's all sorts of tools, like if it's something had to be written, I mean, a, a learner, if they prefer to say something, now, of course, we have a technology. They can dictate, yeah. Brag and dictate that lots of people use because it's just easier for them to be able to uh, speak and have uh, have the uh, computer writing file. Yeah. No, I've written and, books that way. That's the easiest way for me. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. But what? But what's amazing too, I guess, is we really have to get out of this idea that it's a, it's a one size fits all. And um, and, and really, if learning is going to be a lifelong process, the more you understand how you access, engage, and express, really, the better off you're going to be through life. Right. So I'm going to get back to your one size fits all. So. You know, we created that one-size-fits-all during the industrial era, um, and it's actually uh, started almost 150 years ago. Wow. Uh, been using that, those, those ways and those methods all these years, okay? Now we're preparing children for a very different world that's going to move much faster, and, uh, and there are so many jobs that we don't even know that even exist today, Right. So I'm always saying, you know, this learner with agency that we talk about is a learner that can, you know, learn, unlearn, and relearn, okay? Hmm. Another quality. And you're going to have to be able to do that. You're going to have to have that skill to be able to do that because this is how the world is changing. And um, and we also want to also express that our world is global, far more global than anything that we've ever had. And kids are experiencing that all the time. Um, and and we need to really develop global citizens uh, and with these learners mm. and and get them to really take that um, ownership of citizen um, right from the very beginning. And part part of my book actually has where part of the uh, personal learning plan that I talk about is not just setting, of course, skill development and 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 goals around skill development but also around um, personal goals, things that really get you excited, things that you want to try out, um, and also college and career goals to explore those ideas early on, and also citizenship goals, um, because everyone here, you know, um, everyone, no matter where you live in the world, needs to be a really good citizen, you know, and contribute to the democracies that we have. Yeah, Um, and take it to others, yeah. I'm a I'm a I'm a big one on that. I was I was an early um, uh, interested in politics pretty early on and was very involved. And I've been involved in some volunteer capacity over the last forty years uh, in education. Um, and so, uh, giving back it really is what makes our um, democracy great. And we need to help children understand what that all means and how they can do that. Absolutely. Well, Kathleen, we appreciate you and your great work. Again, we su- we suggest everybody go check out the book, How to Personalize Learning, a practical guide for getting started and going deeper. And you can also go to the website, personalizelearning.com, where you can dig in deeper to the process, the approach, and gather a lot of tools. They have toolkits, models, a lot of insight there as well. We will take a break, come back, continue the journey. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, this is a little learning music for you. Uh, Police are searching for a blender-toting bandit who fled Wegmans. Uh, 
a supermarket chain there in Pennsylvania. He allegedly stole blenders that were for sale at the supermarket on various occasions. And then after stealing the blenders, police say the man fled in a full-size four-door white pickup truck. The getaway vehicle had a mural of the Hulk. You know, the Hulk. A character on the back window. Police said the thief most recently was seen on a store surveillance video wearing a black sweatshirt with a red hood. He appeared to have facial hair and uh, he'll be pretty easy to spot as the guy driving the Hulk truck. Apparently, he's also making a smoothie while he's driving around town. See, Terry would be able to tell us if this was the Green Hulk yeah, or, the or the Red, red Hulk, Hulk, right? The Purple Hulk. He's the Terry's the only guy I think that actually would know the answer to that. Hulks who climb on rocks. Today we're celebrating Geek Pride Day, and uh, so we wanted to throw in the Hulk story. No, it's geek, not Greek. Oh, sorry, it's the geek. So you know anybody that's into Marvel comics, you know, and can't get enough. Anybody that might go to a Comic Con, I'm not. I, mean, I don't want to cast aspersions, but I'm just saying, anybody that's, you know, super smart and thinks Princess Leia, the original Princess Leia, was just his dream girl. Doesn't don't both of those describe you though? Super smart, super smart, and yeah. Princess Leia, no. Hmm. I always thought the little hair buns. Did they? They just made you hungry. It made me hungry. Yeah, uh, I'm one that there's really only one kind of bun that matters, and it's a cinnabon. Honey buns? No. Little Debbie's? No. Oh, ooh, honey buns would be good too. Not little Debbie's. Ever since we did the story about the truck, the little Debbie truck, I don't trust it anymore. I mean, I'll eat them. Don't get me wrong. Actually, I can't eat them anymore, but I would have back before I blew up my gallbladder. Anyway, all this ahead, folks. You know, life. We're here to bring you the the, the best we can, the information you need to live healthier lives. We've still got one more hour, so stick with us. We'll take a break. We'll be back helping you live longer, love stronger, lead healthier lives. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hour number three of the program. If you happen to have missed any of the past hours, all you got to do is go to iTunes to tune in to Stitchers. Look us up on BYURadio.org. MattTownsend.com, you name it, you'll find it. It's somewhere, folks, but you're not going to want to miss it because, of course, we've been giving you all the answers to life. What is the meaning of life? Check last week's show. Can I, you know, what do I do with an iguana in my toilet bowl? Check last hour. We've got all the answers. You call Venom 1. That's who you call. The new Spider-Man villain. The new Spider-Man villain. Yeah, we need more info on the Animal Control Tactical Unit in Florida that goes by the name Venom One. It might be classified. We're not sure. That's fantastic. A state secret. What a cool team to be a part of. Yeah, Venom One. I wonder if they ever send them out of the country. It's classified. Like, I mean, you could see that you could send them to Syria and, like, 
probably end the war. But they're animal control, so. Yeah, are they? It's it's the idea. Or is that their cover? Oh. Huh? You know what I mean? So is this like a a SEAL team, but this Mm -hmm. is their their public face is a secret Florida, state of Florida unit? Exactly. Interesting. Venom one. It's like Hawaii Five-0, but Florida. Yeah. Nice. It's exciting. Lots of exciting stuff going on today. By the way, we're also celebrating uh, Geek Pride Day. And we will not be mentioning anything about Spider-Man. Right, but I do have some news for you. There's a new ride at Disneyland called uh, Guardians of the Galaxy Mission Breakout. They took over the Tower of Terror. Oh, yeah, oh, they that did. ride. Yeah, and that changed ride. it to a Guardians of the Galaxy. So they gave the ride a facelift. Basically, actually, it still looks like the tower, except you go inside and it's all Guardians of the Galaxy. Um, wow. So you go through many different features. Many, you know, the rides basically you're following that raccoon. His name's Rocket, mm-hmm. and you're going to go in and rescue the rest of the Guardians who got captured. That's kind of the idea of the okay. ride. Well. Um, they were talking with the, one of the creative executives at Walt Disney, and apparently the events that happen in that tower are a universe unto their own. They have nothing to do with the movie. Oh. It's, it's a it's, whole different set of events. Yeah, okay. And it's not, and they said that it's it's only the beginning. Hmm. They're going to develop this story and build it into its own universe within the theme park. Interesting. Yeah, so. Hey, Terry. Yeah. Don't the Guardians of the Galaxy meet up with Spider-Man in the ah. upcoming films? Um. They'll all be in the uh, film coming up when the Avengers and they fight Thanos. And, Hold on. What do they have to do with the Avengers? It's all in the same sort of world. It's all Marvel. <sighs> Come on, Matt. They're going to be in Avengers, uh, the Infinity Wars or whatever way, they're calling way it. Way to throw a question, a geek question at Terry to then bring him into Spidey World. You don't. No, we don't do that. That's for your, that's for your show tomorrow. By the way, in the trailer for Spider-Man, there's a point where the spider on his suit like pops out and starts <sighs> flying around like a drone. Okay. And uh, that apparently will exist in some form. That you, you can purchase a spider drone and fly it around and annoy your neighbors. You know, I just mm. played softball the other day, and uh, I had a spider that was on my shirt, and I had to brush it off. There you so go. it's kind of Hold like that. Hold it. Now it makes sense. What? That's where Jeff was yesterday. Playing softball? Well, when he played softball last week, he, oh, he done right. pulled his hammies. He had an owie and he stayed home. And his ham, do you remember his ham, his hamstrings were dragging on the floor yeah, they were behind gross. him. It was really gross. They were wrong. So, they were so pulled. So is that where you were yesterday? Wrong. Getting those rolled back in? You're wrong. Mm. Okay. We're still trying to figure out where Jeff Simpson was yesterday. Was he, was he painting a nursery? I Wrong. I don't think so. I think it was more, it seemed like more of a legal court date. Oh, really? Huh. Was he having things removed? Medical procedure of some kind? Yeah, maybe there was some. Maybe he had something scraped. Mm. We got a bunch of real dummies. Yeah. Okay. Guess we're not even close. Well, okay. Well, we tried. Do you remember when he gave us that subtle hint about his birthday? And then that, we finally that, got that, it. Was that his wasn't birthday. really subtle. I wish was he'd it? give us a hint about where he was yesterday. Hmm. You're a monster. Okay, so we, we've got a lot to cover. We'll be talking, um, because Memorial Day is coming up, when we should celebrate uh, those that have given their life for the country. We also could celebrate veterans as well. It's not Veterans Day, but uh, today we're going to be talking about veterans. And the, the sad thing about a veteran, they're more likely to be unemployed for a, vari- a variety of reasons. And we have a researcher that will be talking to us about why, why they – why they some of their beliefs about that might be keeping them from getting jobs or, or or going after certain jobs. So we'll talk about that. Also, we'll be visiting with our good brethren from BYU Sports Nation, 
as we uh, find out, you know, I, I've got a question about NBA versus NFL head coaches. Mm. NBA head coaches have to dress up. Yes. NFL coaches don't. They can just kind of wear the garb of the team. One tried to dress up, a San Francisco 49er coach several years yeah. ago, and like Reebok started making a suit so that he could wear an officially branded suit because it had really? contractual issues yeah, with yeah. what he was wearing. So he wore a black suit, black tie on the sidelines. And that quickly went away because he got fired. But I, I think the Everybody NBA – Everybody likes wearing their hoodies. But the NBA coaches look – they're nice. They look right. dolled up and all, but it seems like it doesn't fit. And in baseball, the managers actually wear uniforms. Yeah. Like a player, which is odd too because they're not playing. I know. So yeah. – we'll, But most of them have played. Well, sure. Most, yeah. most have played But don't you sports. think they, they should then wear the uniform they used to play in? Wouldn't that be interesting? Yeah. I think that would be fascinating. Hockey coaches, suit and tie. Suit and tie. And that's got to be messy when you got to go, you know, pick up a guy's tooth off the right. ice. That's like every game. Yeah. We'll get to that uh, with BYU Sports Nation plus the hero story of the day. All that and some empty news, but first to the headlines with Terry South. What's going on, Terry, that we should be worried about? Residents in two New Jersey counties were watching TV Tuesday night only to be suddenly warned of an emergency at the nation's second larger, largest nuclear generation facility. The warning sent out via the state's emergency broadcast system was a false alarm, albeit one that was, in the words of the local newspaper, sobering if not terrifying. Officials say there was no emergency at the facility. A spokesperson said state police were conducting a worst-case scenario drill Tuesday night. It appeared one of the messages for the drill was accidentally made public via the emergency broadcast system. The Office of Emergency Management, which issued the false alarm, apologized for, quote, any inconvenience. There was, a okay. melt, there was a meltdown in progress. Uh, just kidding. Uh, Pandora <laughs> unveiled a new logo for its mobile app in October, and PayPal is now suing over it, saying it looks too similar to the logo PayPal uses on its own mobile app. A single P for Pandora and two overlapping P's for PayPal, both of them blue and white, and Twitter users have been complaining about getting the two apps confused for months. Really? Yeah, PayPal's lawsuit cites that confusion is... Uh, is in a suit saying customers are accidentally opening their Pandora app when they're trying to open their PayPal app. The company points out more than 20 social media posts about the confusion as exhibits in its suit. The trademark infringement and trademark delusion lawsuit says, uh, or yeah, delusion lawsuit says PayPal has invested heavily in its logo and that one critically important function of the PayPal logo is to stand out on the crowded screens of customers' smartphones and tablets. The suit accuses Pandora of openly mimicking the PayPal logo, which is they're full aware of what the PayPal logo looks like and why. Well, PayPal hypothesizes it was an attempt to take advantage of PayPal's popularity wow. since Pandora is struggling financially and has no obvious path to profitability. <laughs> PayPal wants Pandora, Pandora to stop using the logo and pay damages and all that stuff. So, Ooh, that, them is fighting words. So the whole point was to get to the cut at the end. Like, you guys have no idea how to make money, so you're stealing our logo. Interesting. So, a FedEx employee in the Bay Area accused of burglarizing homes while he was supposed to be working. Police say the 57-year-old Kevin Baker ripped off three homes near Kevin Palo Alto. Bacon? Oh, Kevin ba- oh, Baker? Oh, Kevin Baker. Baker, Baker, yeah. Baker. Oh. Ripped off three homes near Palo Alto between May 3rd and May 17th. Baker is con- a convicted felon with a bunch of theft-related infractions to his name. He's been charged with first-degree burglary, and FedEx spokesman says the company is cooperating with authorities. No hmm. word on you know how he got through any background check, but... You gotta oh, love that movie, Footloose. Yeah, I just can't believe he would do that. Ba- Baker, Baker, Baker. Mm. It's not bacon. It's different. Different guy. 
Uh, and finally, at first glance, the $100 bills looked real. By the third glance, they were clearly <laughs> worthless. Oh, no. A Maryland college student has learned an expensive lesson about the ease in which criminals can scam unsuspecting victims using fake movie money, which is used in motion picture shoots. Hannah, Hannah Borelli wanted to sell her iPhone 6 to help pay for a Memorial Day weekend trip to the beach. On May 15th, she advertised the phone. Online and was contacted by a man who identified himself as Xavier, agreed to buy the phone for $450. Hmm. According to the police, Xavier told the victim that he had only five $100 bills and he would give her the 500 if she would give him 50 in return. The two agreed to meet at a Coles parking lot. Xavier gave her $500 in a bank envelope. She gave him the iPhone 6 and a $50 bill. After the transaction, she took the money to deposit in the inner ATM and nothing happened. I looked at the bottom of one of the bills. It said for prop use only. Oh. Authentic $100 bills have the words Federal Reserve Note while prop money reads for motion picture use only. So he gave her five 100s. Yeah. She gave him the phone and a 50. So he made 50 bucks and got a phone. And she had some funny paper. Uh, that would just. <laughs> How much you want to bet his uh, real off. name is not Xavier? Yeah, that's probably it. I bet it's Xavier. Xavier. Mm. And he runs a school for mut- for mutants. I. Uh, oh, brother. They called him the Gifted at first. Oh, I will say Spider Man is not in that school. He has visited many times, though. <laughs> He's, really? Yeah, he's been in the danger room. He's worked out with the X-Men, but he's not an X-Men. Because X-Men are born with the power, and Spider-Man, it was thrust upon him. So it's this, different. So he's, yeah, kind of like, he's kind of like a half-blood, in, if yeah. you were to go with uh, w- Harry Potter oh, terminology. Well, little yeah. Ha- yeah, yeah, absolutely. This, this demonstration of geekdom brought to you by... Geek Pride Day. Geek Pride Day. Yeah. Man. What? It's just, it blows my mind how you guys can just fall back into that all the time. It's everywhere. It's in every facet of society now. You can't get away from it. How does your wife put up with that? She ignores most of it. Is that what she does? Some of it she acts like she's interested. Yeah. Like if it's going to be in a movie that she's going to have to sit for two and a half hours, she'll listen enough just to get kind of the ground, a foundation knowledge and then tell me to be quiet. Does that work? No, because I just keep going. Then she just kind of. Je- and Jeff room. could turn down your microphone, but he never does. Mm. Okay. Well, oh, it, that it. That was the wrong mic. Yeah. There we go. No, I did. I, that was purposeful. Oh, wow. What? Okay. Up to the meeting. So I was asking <laughs> Jeff earlier. Um, yeah. What he's doing for Memorial Day weekend, and he just giggled, and then he said, "I don't know." Wow. But I think it has something to do with what he did yesterday. Yeah. He just doesn't want to share. He doesn't want to share. What are you doing? My brother's having a barbecue. Cool. We're going to go over there and hang out. Maybe go on a hike. Okay. Yeah. Anything else? Not really. Maybe maybe stain my deck. Oh, there you go. Yeah. I'll be weeding my garden. Hmm. Actually, weed eating my garden. Right. It's a, I, I have a weed garden. Yes, you're harvesting weeds for the neighborhood. Yeah. Someone has to produce all that so the rest of the neighborhood can enjoy. Yep, that's me. And uh, I'm just going to weed it down to nothing. Hmm. Down to the nubbins. So Then till it, then I till it. Okay. And then I remove the weed roots, and then I'll smooth it out. 
Doesn't tilling it just sort of grind in the weeds into the soil and then you just create more weeds? Yeah, you'd think that, wouldn't you? Hmm. Does that not work? Or is that not how it works? Or is it, there... It, it, I don't know. I, Are I, you going to plant something in, in I'm its gonna place? Put, I'm going to try to lay sod down. Ooh. But I really want to... I don't know. Can we get back to the Spider-Man talk? <laughs> See... I'm just comparing the two conversations. Yeah. And that uh-huh. one was a little more interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting. <laughs> the bad guy is a guy named Vulture in the Spider-Man movie. So you're going back to that, are And we? he gets all of his technology okay. from Eight years ago, when the Avengers stopped the alien invasion, he takes that technology, <sighs> repurposes it, and makes these weapons that he starts, like, you know, robbing people with. And Vulture, I believe, is played by Michael Keaton. Yes. Speaking of Vulture. being shot by an arrow, I, um, a I, man, that's another show that yeah. you love is Arrow on the CW. It's, re- it's kind of darker. No, 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 no. There's no, no, a lot no. of moodiness to it, but it has its, it has its high points. Uh, um, 42-year-old man surrendered himself <laughs> Desperately dragging to police out of topic. After he was shot in the head with an arrow overnight. Ouch. Deputy said around yeah. midnight on Monday, they found 41-year-old Raymond Holson in his home on Front Street in Chester. Uh, Brown said Holson had been shot in the head with an arrow from a bow or a crossbow in the front of a home. Yeah. And then he drove himself home. I'm just what I'm trying to do is distract, yes, like know. distract you from your story by mm-hmm. telling you he's listed in good condition. He's all okay. He's great. Just had an arrow in his but head. But he took an arrow to the head and right. then drove himself home because he was late for uh, the latest episode of Arrow. No, or that, there was the Spider-Man trailer, and he's like, "Ooh, I got to get it." No, home. I mean, you guys see. So this is like real life. Yeah, and you'll find that real life is just as exciting as your fake geek mm, life that you keep bringing know. up. I don't know. Spider-Man has 500 variations on how he can, like, shoot webbing out of his new suit that Tony oh, Stark made. Why do you know that? Because it's in the trailer. There's 500 of them. That must be a huge trailer. He has, like, way. a web grenade, so he shoots it, and there's a timer, and then it explodes. Oh, web grenade. That's ridiculous. It's amazing. 500 ways to deploy a spider web. We will have the full rendition of the Spidey 500 Ways song. Straight from Broadway, right here on the Matt Townsend Show. We'll take a break. We're coming back. When we come back, we'll be talking about veterans and careers. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Did you know that military veterans have a higher unemployment rate than non-veterans? Doesn't that just seem counterintuitive, right? Dr. Eileen Trouth, a professor of information sciences and technology at Penn State University, is uh, on the phone with us today to discuss her research on jobs for vets and how the information technology field is a better fit for them than they might originally think. Dr. Trouth, thank you for being with us today. Well, thanks for inviting me. What, uh, what made you uh, so interested in researching veterans and their job opportunities? Well, I've been doing research on the information technology profession for 30 years. So I started out studying how the profession has changed, as new technology has uh, come about. So when I started my career, that's when the personal computer was just uh, Mm. coming out and how that was changing the field. So I've been doing this for a long time. But about uh, 20 years ago, I started looking at underrepresented groups. 
So I originally started looking at women in the information technology field, and then I broadened out to look at race and ethnicity and socioeconomic class. And uh, five years ago, my colleague and I decided to uh, broaden out further and look at two groups of underrepresented people, people with disabilities and veterans. Mm. So it's been kind of a, a progression. Um, and what's interesting about it, 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 to me, it seems kind of surprising because so many people enter the military um, to get specific training and even technical training. So a lot of them are, are already pretty technical, technically trained. Um, but also, but then, it, but it makes sense too. Some also are disabled, but right. then the 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 IT world also could facilitate jobs in delivering IT information tech and support. You know that might be doable for someone with disabilities. But your research is showing a lot of vets don't feel like they could do the job. Yeah, I you know I I, I really put this in the category of a fixable problem. You know, we have a problem of uh, a need for people. The IT field is is growing. Has, has the projections are huge numbers of people, and yet we have people who may not think that they belong. Now, I wouldn't I wouldn't try to push people into the IT career, but I do think people should make informed choices. Yeah. Uh, and as I said in the article, it, it, as someone who's been studying this for thirty years, it really bothers me. It it it, it pains me personally to see people maybe passing up opportunities that they're qualified for. Um, and the, the study that I was writing about, uh, we did these, these written interviews with people to ask them, you know, their views about uh, did they see themselves uh, working in the IT field and how did they think their disability and their, their veteran status and their military experience would affect them. And what was very troubling to me was when I saw people say, no, I'm not interested in the IT field. And then the reasons they gave revealed these stereotypes. Hmm. So stereotypes there, about, Sorry? Oh, go ahead. No, what were the stereotypes? Well, the stereotypes, um, for one thing, the, the research that we did starting 30 years ago on what are the skills and knowledge, there's basically three categories of skills and knowledge to be an information professional. One of them is technical skills. That's what everybody recognizes. Right. What people don't recognize all the time is that there are what we call the human skills. These are the interpersonal, the management skills, and the other are domain skills. In other words, you do IT work in a lot of different areas. You just had someone on your show a couple of days ago yeah. who, who is in medical informatics right. or health informatics. So that's an example of that. So what we saw when people said things about they're not interested in and working in the IT field because they want to work in business, that they don't understand that they could be an IT professional in business. Or someone said, uh, they said some things that I, um, no, I want to study project management. And in our degree program, we offer courses in project management. Or someone would say, I studied, I worked in supply chain at Penn State, our business school. Uh, the, the department is called supply chain and information systems. So what this what this reveals is that people have an incomplete understanding of the, the wide range of jobs. It's not just veterans. I mean, it's I think right. in general of, of some stereotypes. Well, and, and, and sadly, they need jobs. People need jobs but they're, because of their stereotyping or just their lack of understanding about IT. Like, I, I think I would never want to do IT because I'm not technically 
driven or savvy. But again, that's kind of just the technical skills. I do probably have the human and interpersonal skills, and yeah. I might even have expertise in certain domains. So yeah. it doesn't, it's, it's interesting. And, and sadly for the veterans, um, they've already given all this great service. They've already learned leadership skills and other tools that would make them probably an ideal uh, candidate in many ways, um, but they just don't see it as an option. Right. And, and again, I, I, I wouldn't uh, want to say that veterans are the only group of people. I remember several years ago, um, I was uh, meeting with one of my students, and he was a sort of traditional age college student, and he wanted me to review his resume. And um, he had a list of what he called career-related work experience, and then he had something called other work experience. And in the category of other work experience, he put being a waiter in a restaurant. And I said to him, why, why didn't you consider that career related? He goes, well, I was in a restaurant. I said, was this customer interaction? Didn't you have to deal with people who might not like their food? You know, didn't you have to deal with customer complaints and right. all that? And that's just an example yeah. of um, the kinds of skills that are also needed in the IT field um, that are not recognized. And and also interface with technology as a waiter. And I mean, the, the cool thing is, I guess, we, it's maybe it's just IT needs a PR makeover or a, you know an, a, a facelift or something, so that it doesn't seem so ominous or scary. But we keep hearing about all these STEM jobs, and yet um, in my brain I don't equate to STEM because I'm thinking I'm not scientific, I'm not technical. But in reality, we probably need to start seeing that there's a lot of value. In there that we don't even understand. What what are you what are you trying to do, and, and how do you how do we fix this so that we can get more people into this industry? Well, okay, I think there's there are uh, efforts that need to be done in a lot of different ways. If we're talking specifically about the area of vets, um, one of the things veterans can do is take a, take more advantage of the advice and help that's available to them. Uh, my colleague and I have visited different universities to present results of our research, and one of the things that uh, people from the veterans' offices and disability offices have said is that the vets don't always take advantage of the support that is there. And so I think that's something that um, is important to do. Um, I also think um, vets, when they're looking at schools, they can be discerning. Because let's face it, veterans have GI Bill money. They are they are a desirable yeah. population. I've taught vets and I've studied with vets. I started college in the Vietnam era, so I was in college with a lot of vets, and I and I've taught them. And I know that they have maturity, uh, they they have uh, responsibility, they have they have discipline. They're good students. So I think they're the kind of students universities want to have. And so I think, especially with the online programs. Veterans can be a little bit discerning about, you know, where they would want to spend the uh, money that they have. Right. Um, so I think getting advice from the, you know, the offices. Um, and then I think, you know, doing some research about the variety of IT programs that exist. Um, you know, the, you could study, for example, at Penn State. You, if you wanted to study information technology, you could study in the College of Engineering. You could study in my College of Information Science and Technology. We have a college of communications. We have, we have a college of business. So there's a lot of different flavors. And so there's some, some research, you know, that needs to be done. Now, what this also suggests is that universities can do a better job of talking to each other. And so what I think 
is important for universities to do is to have people like me who are IT professors talk to veterans' offices and talk to people in disabilities' office to help them get a better idea about the range of jobs that exist. Hmm. That's so a great – that's a great – I mean, that, that would be a great partnership. Does um, – because veterans, many of the veterans might also have a disability uh, because of their service. Um, do you sense the IT world is more uh, workable with disabilities than others? Is it more accessible? I actually do. Um, in the uh, the study that I that I wrote about the uh, um, the veterans, they talked about a variety of different types of of disabilities. They talked about physical and mobility disabilities, sensory disabilities, and cognitive disabilities. There, I mean, basically, information technology work exists everywhere. So if someone has a PTSD and says they don't want to be around people, there are jobs where people could work as an independent programmer, and you don't have to be around people. Uh, you know, someone said, well, I couldn't do this because I have to sit all day. Well, you don't. You know, yeah. there's all kinds of work configurations. But again, there's, you know, there is that um, that stereotype. So, yes, I actually believe that um, there are uh, probably some type of IT work that a person with any disability would be able to do. Um, I also think, though, that this, uh, there's a role for employers to play and for employers to not have stereotypes about veterans and for employers to not have stereotypes about people with disabilities. Mm, that's and, true, huh? And I, I think, you know, my research is broadly, the scope of it is broadly called social inclusion. So I look at underrepresented groups. And more and more has been written about we need to, you know, track statistics on underrepresented groups in our society and in the information technology field and to be more visible. And so I think... Um, in my field and in my area of research, when people think about underrepresented groups, they would think about women, they would think about racial and ethnic minorities, and it's a little bit more recent that people have been thinking about disability. But in the uh, professional association that I um, am a member of, the Association for Information Systems, we have a, a special interest group in social inclusion and I was the founding president of it. It was started in 2009, and very, very quickly, I saw the research being presented at the conference about people with disability, and we need to have more of that. I think, in general, there's a lack of awareness and a lack of understanding, and when people don't have awareness and understanding, I think they fill in with stereotypes. No, you're right, and we kind of just default to it, it sounds like. Yes. Like, yes. And yet, and sadly, again, it makes us not go for certain jobs and it makes us as employers not look for people with certain um, – with that, that might be – our stereotypes might omit in our mind. Right. And, and it's what's particularly troubling is you know when we see in the media wounded warriors and people want to do things, well, there's things that can be done. I, you know, I think in America, though, we, we often want the silver bullet. You know, I'm just going to – uh, you know, find a website immediately, I'm going to get a great job, or I'm, you know, uh, immediately going to be able to hire somebody with a disability and not have to think about, you know, what their work arrangements might be. It may not be as simple as that, but, you know, it's, it's a doable thing to, you know, to understand what the, the work needs are of an individual. Um, you know, there is certainly in my field so much uh, uh, virtual work and flexible work 
uh, you know, some of the people wrote, uh, I, I couldn't do an IT job because of, uh, you know, I get headaches because of an injury or whatever. Well, there's ways in which we can configure work. Right. You know, it, it, it's, it's possible. As I said, this is what I call fixable problems. It is, if we want to do it, it is possible. Uh. And, uh, you know, there's a cohort of people who are capable of doing this work. When I, when I looked at the, uh, the transferable skills, and I, I drew these from what people wrote in open-ended comments, here's a list of what uh, the, these, these people, these you know, almost 300 people said about the kinds of skills they get from the military. Determination, discipline, leadership, problem-solving, organization in detail, working with others, stress management, flexibility. Hmm. Who wouldn't want to hire these people? Exactly. <laughs> these, are the, these, these are the kinds of skills. Um, but I think also um, veterans and, and uh, veterans with disabilities could also benefit from, from getting help about how to recognize their own, just like my student who didn't recognize being a waiter was something that was, was good human interaction skills. And so I think there is a role, and I think there's a tremendous opportunity for universities who uh, are interested in uh, reaching out to this, this population to help veterans recognize their transferable skills and to know how to present them in a job application and in an interview. No, I agree. And, and too, because the, the universities also have the disabilities offices, what a perfect way to start segueing not only finding the skills and that would work into these other fields, but if you do have a disability, how to start, you know, making the compromises you need to make and figuring out how to make your disability work in life. It's the university almost seems like the ideal ground to to start bridging that gap. Right, right. Um, but I myself am going to be. Um, uh, getting more very specifically involved in this. I, I had an opportunity to retire from Penn State, so I'm going to. Oh, wow. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to begin to work as fo- focus full-time on doing outreach and awareness and using very uh, creative ways, using the media as a way to, um, to do my part to, uh, uh, to try to help um, people have a greater awareness of the range of jobs that are available and the ways in which people can recognize their skills. So taking advantage of, uh, you know, all of the media and the ways that, that people try to learn about careers. Uh, so this is something that I began as a, in my role as a professor. I actually wrote a play with uh, one of my sisters who's in theater uh, to present some of these barriers. Huh. One of the things that I particularly am concerned about it's, it's one thing if there's an overt barrier. Somebody holds up a sign that says, we don't want to hire veterans. Okay, that's very yeah. explicit. That's very overt. We can address that. But what do we do when people internalize barriers themselves? Right, right. In their head, right. Right. And so the play that we wrote was about the topic of gender and race and, and socioeconomic class. But we're going to be continuing to make more media products in which we raise these issues. So you can imagine a Netflix series that would, you know, that would deal with with some of these barriers that people are internalizing. Oh, that's great! No, and you can actually there is a there's a there's a I think a show called American Lives. Um, oh, what is it? Uh, American Crime that um, they they tell these stories of crimes on uh, it's on ABC, but they weave yeah. into it all of our prejudice and our some of these hidden stereotypes of life right. it's have you watched right. it yet 
No, but I wrote it down. But go watch it, American Crimes, because it really all of a sudden it starts to tell a more complete story about the crime we see in America. And, right. and and the complexity of it and how our, our stereotypes about ethno minorities or people with disabilities or and mental health issues. Oh, Eileen, great work you're doing. We uh, we appreciate your time and we wish you the best of luck with your retirement. And as you go out and continue to help uh, help people recognize their strengths and uh, overcome their own belief systems that might be holding them back again, Dr. Eileen Trouth from Penn State University. We'll take a break, folks. Come back, uh, do a little Coach's Corner, and visit our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. It's all straight ahead. Stick with us. What's the matter with you, boy? You too stupid to do what your coach tells you? Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Play ball! Welcome back, folks. Remember, um, it's... Uh, boy, our mind plays such games on us. And is it possible then, as we were just hearing with Dr. Trouth, is it possible that our belief, our paradigm, our mindset could actually keep us from applying for a job, could keep us from you know, exercising and doing our greatest gift and sharing our greatest gift and talents with others? Is, is it simply possible that because I'm not informed enough, I could be missing the the great opportunity to to be more. So somehow we've got to reevaluate our own thinking. If you have people around you telling you you would be great at something, listen to them. Don't just immediately dismiss them by poo-pooing the idea. Maybe they see something in you. Um, and, and let's start learning more and understanding more. It's, it, it, it makes sense. If you obviously – if you have some disability, if you've been knocked down two or three or four times, it's easy to, to just be hopeless about life. But there are people around you that can see the good in you even if you can't see it. There's assessments you can take. Go into your local community centers. Go into your, your, your uh, colleges and your universities and take some of the assessments that you can take to find out what you would be good at and, and open up some doors. There's so much going on out there that is new and innovative that uh, we just need our mind to shift sometimes. And so, and by the way, we all could be a little bit more positive with each other as well. Instead of destroying people's dreams, what if we started helping to point some of those dreams out? Powerful stuff. We'll take a break. When we come back, our good friends at BYU Sports Nation will be with us. We'll find out what's coming up on their show in about 15 minutes. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show as we take that elevator ride down to our good friends in the studio at uh, BYU Sports Nation. Spencer and Jerem, how are you, gentlemen? My number one homie told me to go to Diddy Dental. (laughs) For a dizzle. (laughs) An incredible dizzle. Hey, um, I've missed you. Spencer, where have you been? Okay, so on Tuesday, yes. uh, Uncle B, Blaine Fowler, um, invited me to participate in uh, a fundraiser for raising scholarship money for uh, 
single mothers that have been abused or been in tough situations. Great job. So, you know, yeah. I thought that would be a good thing. For sure. And yesterday, my five-year-old had his annual dance festival at his elementary school as part of his kindergarten program. Ooh, was this hip-hop dance or? It, it was a hip-hop dance specifically for the kindergartners. Excellent. He was amazing. Was he? Yeah. So does he does he dance like his dad or his mom? Oh, he dances like his dad. Are you kidding me? <laughs> You've seen the evidence, Matt. No, I know. Yeah. You've seen you've the got, evidence. You've got the moves. Circa 2000, Jax has already shown me up. Yeah, for sure. Jax has got all it takes. Now he just needs a grill from Diddy Dental. Yeah. <laughs> and he'll he'll have it all that. So you, you've been busy. You've been doing family work, charity work. Yeah, something like that. Good job. And, and, and uh, the deal is Jerem's been lonely. Jerem has not been lonely because he's had Jason Shepard and Brian Logan. I know. Here. I have the muscle in here. You had the muscle. Yeah. Hey guys, Muscles. I got a question for you. What's up? I saw this on Bleacher Report. Um, why there's a lot of people are saying it's time that the NBA coaches can cha- they need to change their dress standards. It's not fair that they have to wear suits when the NFL coaches get to just wear all this wonderful leisure wear. If you ask Quinn Snyder, the head coach of the Utah Jazz, I think he prefers to wear a nice suit. He looks he looks good. Some people right? pull it off, right? But does it make a difference? I mean, Greg Popovich probably wants to wear a hoodie, right? Yeah, right on. Sure. And he should be allowed to do what he wants to do because he's amazing as a coach. Well, but, so, yeah. But you know, okay, so but in baseball, the the managers get to wear they a, have a jersey a, number. They have a uniform and a jersey number. I have an idea. I wanted to know what you guys thought. They're in the field of play. Don't you think it would be great to see like Popovich not wearing a suit, but wearing the actual uniform he wore when he played? <laughs> no. no, flabby arms. Please no. Flabby arms, but short, short shorts. And Listen, they have to wear that. That would get some major attention for sure. <laughs> for, for sure. That would, I just, yeah. I don't know. I don't want to, I don't want to be crazy. I also noticed that the NBA or the NFL owners uh, voted to change some of the celebration, uh, end zone celebration rules. Yeah. So do, do you think, do you think that's going to improve the game? Well, make it a little more fun. I guess in celebration. Let the people celebrate hard work. Let the gladiators celebrate Success. They're, they're still holding back, saying we can't celebrate in in dirty ways, in uh, non you know healthy ways. It's got to be G rated celebration. How do they determine that though? It's all oh, that's a PG rated celebration. You're flagged. <laughs> there was a little too much hip action there. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you if you've watched uh, Hingle McCringleberry on Key and Peele, you have an idea of where this is going. <laughs> wow, Hingle McCringleberry. You haven't seen this? No. Should I look that Just up? Type I mean, up this key is, and peel touchdown. Oh, I, oh, I love. Okay. I'm not advocating the viewing of said video. Yeah, no, you're you not. Brought it up. You just brought I it. Make that clear for <laughs> legal ramifications <laughs> later. <laughs> uh, what did you say? Now that it's, it's on now, record. <laughs> now that I know it's key and peel, then yeah, say no more. <laughs> say no more. So you guys, uh, now no that more. you're back together, are you still um, you still going to do well, your show? Only, this is the only show we're doing together. Okay. Yeah, Jerem. Jerem's. It's late, May. He's mad at me, so he's taking out tomorrow. Oh my gosh. Oh yeah, he's got he's it's, got the big Memorial Day blowout. It's late May. Yeah. Boy. So hey. Well, we're gonna yeah. miss you, Jerem. There's no off season, but there is. Yeah, except for the off season that there is. Um, what what's on your show today? Today we ask the greatest Twitter question asked in the 990 shows we've had. <gasps> really? One of them for sure. No, no, no. It's the best. 
<laughs> do, do you want to share? Get, oh. You get one guaranteed win this football season for BYU. And you have to pick between LSU or Utah. Oh, Which one heavens. do you pick and why? Are you kidding? We will discuss! Riley yeah. Nelson, the grittiest quarterback in BYU history, will join us as well. Don't make us choose. You have to choose. Ah. Uh. Choose this, is not this, saying that day. The, this is not saying that the other is a guaranteed loss. It's just saying you can you guarantee get a guaranteed win. one win you get against either LSU or Utah. LSU. Pick one LSU. We've yeah. been losing to Utah for six years. <laughs> so keep it going. Let's get LSU. Okay, we have very different uh, opinions on this, okay. and I have a lot to say. Oh, this will be good. That'll, that's a great question. I'm very excited. It's going to be fun. Okay, so so far, that's that's a perfect show right there. Yeah, Riley Nelson will weigh in. He was part of that rivalry. Okay. Uh, and then, of course, a little big deal, no deal. Bad Cats in action tonight. Ooh, in fact, yeah. Spencer's wearing a jersey. I saw that. name on it. Linton. I thought it was Linton this whole time. Linton! Oh, my gosh. Yeah, uh, Bad Cats in action. You can listen on BYU Radio tonight, 10 Eastern time, and the app, of course. BYU versus LMU. The Cougars are not starting their day one starter, who has struggled the last two times out. They're going to start Brady Corliss, the day two guy, who has been tremendous this year. 10 Eastern versus LMU. Uh, double elimination West Coast Conference Tournament. Four teams. Winner gets an auto bid to the NCAA Regionals. Holy cow. This is exciting. Isn't it? So exciting. Is that why you're wearing the jersey? Absolutely. Or the, uh, do you think they're going to throw Just you random. in? Do you think they'll ever play you, Spence? Um, Just like, you know, throw you in. At this juncture in the season, probably not. Well, Maybe I right have my eligibility left for BYU baseball. During the 23-19 game would have been good. Yeah. Defensively, at least, put you out there. Yeah. Rome out and left. Hey, I got one other question for you. This is for Jeff Simpson here. Um, Jeff plays on the BYU broadcasting softball team. We've talked to him about that. And he, he's right. pulled his hammies. And um, we told him to stretch I out. warned him. He, he him he's wondering if Icy Hot would work. Yeah, you just rub it on your forehead. Ask Shaq about it. Yeah. I don't want to. Dude, by the way, did you, did you see Shaq going at it? poured all over. Did you see that audio of, or that video of Shaq and Charles Barkley going yeah. at it? Yeah. That was funny. Okay. That's, that's like the typical off-camera banter that we have. Is that like you guys? Just put, mm-hmm. putting each other down? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, now we, we understand. We share an office, so... If it gets awkward, it's really awkward. Yeah. No, that's really good. <laughs> well, I did. I, I, by the way, I did just see McCringleberry's excessive celebration, and you are absolutely right. Yeah. Not again, something again, anyone else should legally, see. Legally, I just want to make sure Scott Halverson and all the lawyers know. You did not. Re- I did not no. advocate. But you just said. That was or a- does he advocate right now? That's right. Nor, Nor do I exactly. advocate now or in the future. This is yeah. legally binding. There you, there you go. You've officially said it. Okay, guys. Well, we wish you the best of luck on your show. It's four and a half minutes away, four minutes and 45 seconds away till you get to have the greatest ride of your life on BYU Sports Nation. So stick with us through that. Um, also, of course, we there's, there's so much we could talk about. We could get more into the geek news, but um, without Terry here, it really wouldn't help us. Yeah, he gave you this huge stack of papers, alphabetized. Yeah, millions of pages of geekery, because today we're celebrating Geek Pride Day. And... No, again, I'm worried about you, Jeff, because it's like you can't hear. Huh? You can't. <laughs> it's, it's Geek Pride Day, not Greek. Are you saying the Greek should not be pri- no, or the, proud? No, there's a lot of, you should totally be proud if you're Greek. But today we're not celebrating the Greek pride, we're celebrating geek. Huh. Anyway. 
Okay. Anyway, I don't know what to tell you about that. But uh, we can do uh, this simple little story of a man jailed for attempted raid at a jeweler's in Kent, England. The man took part of a botched heist dubbed the Laurel and Hardy Raid, and he's finally behind bars. Colin Ayers, 28, has been arrested and sent to prison for two years after admitting conspiracy to a burgle and jewelry at a bur- at a jewelry store. The court uh, heard the details of the um, of the comical caper, which resulted in him and Mervyn Chong abandoning their break in before they mopped uh, before their moped. Sorry, smashed into a lamppost. So as they're trying to get away, they crash into a lamppost. But defense lawyers pleaded with the judge not to punish Ayers for his stupidity. Look, Your Honor, don't punish him for his stupidity. He's got to live with this stupidity the rest of his life. The two-man team had planned with meticulous detail a smash-and-grab raid on the jewelers in 2013, which they snatched expensive watches. And after taking pictures of their proposed targets, the pair then wrapped themselves in dark coats, masks, and ski uh, masks with hoodies to conceal their identity. Then they got on their robbery vehicle, the little moped, only to discover with all of their headwear they couldn't uh, they, they couldn't put their crash helmets on. So Ayers put a pickaxe between his legs and began circling the jewelers in the Queen Street, but was so conspicuous that four shoppers dialed nine one one before the raid could take place. It's, Whoops! You can't wear face masks and then and have a pickaxe. No, while you're driving around the jewelry district. As they were about to strike, police swooped in, and uh, and in the panic to escape, Ayers, the rider, managed to steer the machine into a lamppost. The two tried to escape on foot, but were caught nearby. One of them actually ran into the arms of an off-duty officer. <laughs> so it just went from bad to worse for them. So, you know, if, if, you've, if you feel down, like, man, I just wish I could get more out of life, just realize at least you're not Mervyn Chong. Um, or Colin Ayers. Hey, we also like to tell a hero story at the very end of the show. And the hero story is a local man who uh, from Manhattan Times Square who immediately jumped into action tackling a driver accused of mowing down a crowd at Times Square, killing one teenager and injuring dozens more. Kenya Brandix, a door host at Planet Hollywood, saw Richard Rojas speeding through the bustling Times Square area Thursday afternoon before coming to a crashing halt. One woman identified as 18-year-old Elisa Elsman was killed. 22 others were injured, four critically. Rojas, who police uh, sources say was possibly high on synthetic marijuana, attempted to flee on foot. Uh, and when he was running, he was screaming and flailing his arms in every different direction, Brandix said. Eventually, multiple people attempted to stop Rojas, tearing at his shirt. But Brandix says uh, he was the one that was able to tackle him to the ground. Nothing came into my head, Brandix said, when asked if he was afraid of Rojas may be armed. I'm thinking I just want to do the right thing. So, Kenya Brandix, you're the hero of the day on the Matt Townsend Show. Stepping in, uh, risking your life even, and uh, taking on the dangerous moment. That's what makes a hero. But also what makes a hero is just being good taking care of each other and uh, loving one another. That's why we do the show. We'll be back tomorrow to give you more hope, more insight in how to make your life better. Until then, let's take care of each other, and uh, we'll talk again tomorrow.